Hello and welcome to the Life in General podcast. My name is Nick. I'm Ian. Your remote Ian for the second week in a row. Hey, people are, is uh, well, technically the fourth week in a row. No, I mean like second week in a row. The like people will be able to see us. See us, right? Yeah, visually remote. Yes. So how's uh, how's how's isolation going for you, man? Uh, well, I'm really only isolated when I have days off. Otherwise, I'm at work. That's and true. You you, no, you work four no days a week, so yeah, which is no different than yeah. And it's on a two-week cycle, so, you know, if I get, during the weeks, I get maybe one or two days off in a row, but then I have my week, my every other weekend off, so. Yeah. Uh, hopefully the, uh, I, so I, looking back on our recording from last week, the audio and all everything sounded a lot better than it did for the show before, mm-hmm. with, the, with the exception of me harassing Ian about, uh, well, I, I talked about the quality of the internet and then his internet dropped him or something. I don't know what the hell happened. And I don't, I don't di- know if it was mine disappeared. or not. No, no, I mean, it could have been, but I don't think it was directly my internet. I mean, it could have been throttled because of all the quarantining and stuff, but cause oh, as just, a rule, it, I, it just could have been like a momentary hiccup in the internet connection. It could have been. Anything. Right. Yeah. And it way, could more, happen again. more product placement. Yeah. It could have happened again. It could happen again. I mean, during this one, no, we're talking about it, so it's bound to happen now. Yeah. So, oh, uh, what was that? A couple months back, we did a a show where we talked about the music of Pink Floyd, yes. and prior to that, we had done an episode. Originally, the 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 first episode like this was supposed to be a Jethro Tull episode. And then Ian, we did the episode, and then Ian kind of accused me of hijacking the episode to talk about uh, the uh, album cover for the album Aqualung. Right, or the controversy thereof. Correct, correct. And I didn't intend it to, like, hog up for you know 45 minutes of that episode, but it kind of right. did. So right. I felt like, I, I kind of felt bad, and I, we, so we decided to do, like, the music of Jethro Tull revisited. So that's okay. what we're gonna do today. We're, we're gonna talk go, about go through the history of the band with you know, correct hitting on the albums and correct. Else. Yeah. So so I mean, Ian, obviously you're you've been you were named after the lead singer of the band, and you've been a a fan of the band for a majority of your life. Yes. Um. So where did we, so you're? I know we talked about this before. I guess we talk, kind of touch on it again. But your were your parent both of your parents fans of the band, or was it just your dad? Or primarily just my dad. I mean, my mom, you know, Fairweather. She likes some of the songs. Yeah. Um, my dad has a tendency to um, when he gets into something, he tends to overdo it, and it's actually something that I I do too. Uh, I think a so lot of she, people do. By the time they got divorced, I think she'd had her fill of Jethro Tull for. <laughs> a while um to the point that probably she i don't think she actually enjoyed listening to jethro Tull for another 25 years before yeah she could say oh yeah that's it's enjoyable again but i'm sure, I'm sure she heard quite a bit of it oh uh, yeah every I, I my some of my earliest memories is uh my mom my dad didn't go to church with us when they were married but i take my sister and i to church and on a Sunday, and we'd be coming back home, in the, especially in the summertime. You pull into the driveway, and I could hear music blaring from the house. Yeah. And it was always Jethro Tull. Um, in fact, I I've, I remember one specific time coming home and heavy horses being on, just blaring from the from the house. Mm-hmm. So, back in the very early '80s. Yeah. So I guess 
for people that don't know the band mm-hmm. or are kind of like casual fans of the band, you want to kind of go through the formation of the band and all that? or Well, in, in my experience, there's really not a lot of people who are like in between. It's either you don't know them or you know them really well, at least. I mean, there's a lot. There's, there's some people who are like, oh, okay, the flute player in the band, that flute player band. But mm-hmm. I don't, I get a lot, a lot of people who either, oh, yeah, or I know them, or I don't know the, who you're talking about. Yeah. There's not a lot of in between. Uh, they formed in 67 in Blackpool. Uh, they started Which out. Which is on what the northwest coast of of england of england yeah. about midway between liverpool and lancaster i believe yeah i'd have to look at a map to be 100 percent sure but it's up up there and because uh, I'm, I'm a i'm a fan of english soccer i yes. i know the layout of, yeah. of england pretty well uh blackpool is actually a tourist town it's kind of a kind of the sandusky of of Ann Ar- of um england england yeah where you know they've got the um like a, an amusement park there and you know it's 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 a kind of a tourist uh city of sorts yeah um but they started there and it kind of started out as like a well they started out as like a six piece kind of a jazz band but very that ended very very quickly and they were the john evans band then Um, well i mean i i think actually before that it was just ian anderson on guitar um jeffrey hammond and then john evans on drums and that, played, yeah that didn't last that, very no, no no but that that was kind of where the the band kind mm-hmm. of started right. or or what would eventually become the band kind of started right. and it was and it was actually jeffrey hammond that that uh encouraged john evans to drop the s from his name mm-hmm. because jeffrey hammond thought it was it, it made him sound more unusual hmm. it's a very british thing to do i guess yeah and john evans doesn't need a lot of help being unusual no that's, back that's in the very day. true <laughs> but uh yeah but but it, was, it, it quickly, be, it quickly yeah. became like a five six seven piece kind of a jazz band but again yeah, that be, didn't last very long either yeah because i know when they signed so when they signed with the with terry ellis and chris right in november of 67 to manage them they were a six-piece band at that time mm-hmm. and then it was shortly after they signed that deal that the band like completely broke up <clears throat> and it was ian anderson uh um uh glenn cornick and mick abrahams that uh that mm-hmm. recruited well yeah mick, Cl- mick came in very very shortly after that breakup because he wasn't in the john evans band uh he no 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 that. you're right you're right it was actually neil smith was the guitar player right. when they mm-hmm. when they signed the deal so after they signed with 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 terry ellis and chris wright it was when that's when neil smith left the band and mick abrahams took over on guitar they end up so they broke up and then those three recruited clive bunker and that kind of formed what that band would be right the four that four piece band yeah and um, uh it, it was actually really interesting because i know that uh like at that time it was uh they so they went through i i got i don't want to take over this you go ahead hmm. i was going to kind of talk well, about their different, different names, names and why they yeah. went through well I, I mean i don't even know all the names because they would what the problem was is the the way to to get your name out there to get basically to be a, a functioning rock band or a blues band really is what they were shooting for at that point yeah uh you had to get a residency at the marquee club in london and every week they would try out to be the res, a res to get a residency and every week they would get shot down. So the next week they'd have to go in with a different name to, to even get 
get a chance because otherwise the the marquee clubs they know we we already heard you guys last week. Yeah. So every week they'd had to try a new name, and what stuck obviously was Jethro Tull. The, the when that do you, one. Do you know how they ended up with that name though? It, it was, was actually their booking man, booking, booking agent. agent. Yeah. Well, it wasn't actually. So it was It wasn't actually the booking agent. It was one of the booking agent staff members, who no, was. For- was was a big uh a big history enthusiast mm-hmm. and so because some of the other names i know that they came up with were um navy blue was one of the names mm-hmm. uh ian henderson's bag of nails was bag of blues one. bag of blues too Did okay henderson's bag of blues and then my favorite candy colored rain colored rain <laughs> <laughs> which is a terrible name i mean yeah. i i yeah. i i was in a band in high school and we had our share of terrible names anything but, but uh, cheese yeah, uh, fourteen pounds of dangling fury was another one for a short time, mm-hmm. and yeah, there's a. But yeah, the 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 week they got signed for the residency was the week they were Jethro Tall, and that's just yeah. it. Just stuck. Now, from from what I heard, it was actually the the it was the yeah. I don't know if they were actually signed, but I know it was the first night that they were asked to come back and re- right. and perform well, they again. Were, that night they were given a Thursday. I think it was a. Th- Tuesday and Thursday night residency. Yeah. Okay. Two nights a week residency. Yeah. Um, and this is, I mean, every band that, I mean, Zeppelin, uh, the who, I mean, all these bands went through the marquee club, the same thing. Yeah. The nice. I mean, they all, all the bands that have, that came out to be like these giant classic rock bands yeah. all came through the marquee club. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of the beginning and uh, that was in uh, February of seven of um, late January, early February of 1968. Yeah, when they did that. So and they recorded an album like right away. I think they recorded it in like a week and a half. I, I know it was a really short period very, of time. Very which, quick. You, which for the time I think was pretty common. I know the Doors did the same thing. Mm-hmm. They recorded their first album in, in seven days. Yeah, I think Black Sabbath's first album was eight days. Yeah. So yeah, very common for those artists to just pump out a, their first album very quickly. Very yeah. well, because you figure a lot of those bands had been touring or, or playing locally for a good amount of time at least, and, and probably had quite a few songs already ready. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of go into the studio and knock them out. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and there were a couple covers on the there's, album. There's not, so. there's not like a writing process. It's not like a big writing process. Right. Um, the name of their, their first album is called This Was. And I don't know if they really had the foresight um, at the time, but it, it really is kind of um, kind of a perfect title because this was Jethro Tull. It really was just that that moment in time. Yeah. Um, they uh they the album was released it got quite quite a bit of critical acclaim not so much in the states but in the uk uh it was it was quite popular mm-hmm. um and the thing with it is is that mick abrahams he was kind of a i wouldn't say he was like a a, a secondary leader of the band but he had a, a vision for the band that really didn't entail them going very far he hated flying he refused to fly actually so there was no way they were ever going to be able to 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 make it in the u.s um and he had a very narrow not an i say it's a narrow view but a very narrow view of what he wanted as a band structure he wanted a blues band oh and 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 that's a very it's a very blues heavy album for sure it very it is it very much is but if you listen to some of the songs like it's the one album where ian anderson isn't the sole um songwriter mike abrahams yeah. did write several songs and ian anderson co-wrote 
two songs. He co-wrote a song with Nick Abrahams and co-wrote a song with um, Clive Bunker. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the Ian Anderson songs, you can hear it's a little less bluesy. And there's an an element of jazz because he throws in his cover of Roland Kirk's Serenade to a Cuckoo. Yep. Which is a great song. Right. And, And his version of it isn't too divergent from Roland Kirk's, but just divergent enough. Yeah. In fact, though, I, I would say that Roland Kirk, I don't know if he if, if he did it on purpose or what, but he he altered the arrangement of it in a live performance, like in '75, and it's really interesting. It's it's a, mm-hmm. it's an interesting show because you see it, it, um, all kinds of crazy shit going on with him. He was really he really upped the ante on it. Yeah. But so that it really was kind of like that. This was at this very moment of of their of the band history, and it didn't chart yeah. too bad in the U.S. It reached sixty two in the U.S., which isn't too bad. Yeah, no, I mean it's not, but I I don't know how the how the charts really worked back then. They probably were more important then. So like a sixty a number sixty two is is you know a relative hit then sixty two now no one even fucking talks about. But yeah, uh, but they're so, number ten. It reached ten in, in the U.K. Okay yeah right and it was very it was quite popular and um and i know you know this because i pointed it out to you when we were watching if you watch the 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 film woodstock mm-hmm. then we probably should get to the secondary because it was 69 but that one of the songs off of that album is being played by on i'm assuming on the pa system or something yep. yeah, it was on the PA system. Noise. but yeah anyway uh so really it was kind of a snapshot of a period of time Mick Abraham's left there shortly thereafter. I think he was gone within two months of the album being released. Yeah, yeah. It was, I know it wasn't long. So just, just as a, as a result, it really was one of those true instances of just musical differences. Um, Cause they it almost, it, it, it almost made you wonder how they kind of even formed. I, I, I guess. Well, I think, I think when they started, I think there was just this idea that, Hey, we're going to try and do this blues thing, but I think once they started to get a little success, I think Ian Anderson himself, and, he, and this this is him saying it, not me, but he didn't want to be another, well, he, he really wasn't raised middle class, but we'll say lower middle class, white guy trying to emulate um, something that's inherently black American. Yeah. Uh, he's, you know, there's bands who do it. Led Zeppelin for is a perfect example of a band that can do it good and did it right. Yeah, absolutely. But he didn't think that he could really bring anything new to that. And he yeah. felt that it would, it would be just a sad imitation. And that's kind of, he even thinks of this was as kind of a sad imitation of what a white man doing black American blues, mm-hmm. even though they're huge influences from that. It just, yeah. and I get it. I understand that. Um, but he wanted to do something that was a bit more English, something more in tune with his, and their next their next album was definitely that right and it does have a little the next album was 1969 stand up um martin Barr comes in taking over guitar because mick abrahams leaves and uh this is where the band this is where ian anderson takes over the band completely yeah um wrote every song on the album and uh produce the album I mean, this is like him taking complete control although they wasn't he didn't produce by choice he produced because they just couldn't find any producers that to, wanted to, to work with them or had the time yeah uh, i think it, or the, or, or that they'd be willing to work with or would they be right uh in 69 he actually they did um check in with george martin to help he wanted, they oh, wanted really? to produce i think i do remember reading that somewhere yeah he they wanted him to produce their next album he couldn't do it and he said well 
what it who or no it wasn't it wasn't stand-up it was benefit because he said who produced the last album yeah and he says well i did I, I produced it but you know he said well just produce again you, you did all right on that one didn't you yeah, Anderson, you, put, you put the yeah. cart before the horse right ian anderson always says he was probably just letting him down easy he didn't want to do it. <laughs> but, but the uh the interesting thing about stand-up is so the the thing that kind of caught my eye originally because i bought it the first copy i bought on vinyl i actually bought from a flea market uh-huh. and at the time i had i mean I, I had heard thick as a brick i had heard aqua long i had them both on vinyl and uh but i hadn't heard stand up at least i hadn't heard the whole album before mm-hmm. and uh i just kind of i open up the gatefold and it's like a it opens like a children's pop-up mm-hmm. and it has like their picture on the inside of it right well it's like and, uh their actual faces like photographs of their faces on like cartoon bodies car- caricature or, bodies characters kind of. bodies yeah mm-hmm. um but the interesting thing is, is about that album is that pop-up is only in the vinyl issues of that album until starting in 73 they discontinued the pop-up and from 73 on it was just a picture inside right yeah so if you had the pop-up you had one of the earlier editions right yep. which 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 mine ended up in a landfill somewhere so <laughs> i still have mine oh, well. I have yeah so but um stand-up scene and it's a very unique album for the time period too because it's it does still have some blues elements to it. There's mm-hmm. still some part present, but it is like you said, where, as I was pointing out, the, the bringing in some more English esque and even, yeah. even other uh, ethnic type sounds. But um, it was the first album of Jethro Tulls that was kind of distinctly English. Yeah. Uh, and and a-, a side note, uh, Ian Anderson heard, and I don't know if it's true. He doesn't know if it's true, but, Eddie Vedder carries a copy of that whenever he goes on tour. No, it's so Eddie, actually Eddie Vedder could, did confirm that. And I don't think it's, it, it was only just their first couple of tours. Okay. okay. Still it was, you know, it, it's, it's an album with some really good songs on it. I oh mean. yeah. Oh yeah. And so uh, it also um, Tom Hamilton from Aerosmith said that it's one of his favorite albums. Really? Okay. Yep. And actually in an interview in 2015 with uh, Bray Words, Ian Anderson said that it was his favorite album. Also, he said if you twist if you twisted his arm, he would say stand up. That was his yeah, because it was it was because it was it was the first album that he had full creative control over. Right, and for for what it's worth, he had full control. I don't think there's a song on it that he doesn't like either. Yeah. It's a great album. Al- albums really later, he's he, he's very open about the songs he hates that he wrote. Yeah. He can't stand, yeah. and we'll cover some of those as we get to them because I disagree. <laughs> the vast majority of course you do i do i do i because i i i don't understand what he's talking about when he says are there are there any jethro tall songs you don't like ian uh i'm not a huge fan of hot mango flush okay so there's one song one song off of 20 albums uh solo (laughs) ian anderson's solo album uh the song the album rupees dance the song rupees dance i can't really stand either uh no, I don't like the Mickey Abraham songs that this was either. Yeah. Um, I don't, they're just not, I don't, they're, they're different. And, and I don't know. They don't fit with my, how I understand Jethro Tull to be, I guess. It, it's probably just that. Um, but I'm not a big fan of Mick Abraham's stuff post Jethro Tull either. His Bloodwind yeah. Big stuff. Because it's just too much blues. It's just, and it's a kind of a different style of blues. It's not what 
I'm accustomed to even listening to some of the more traditional real um, black artists, you know, yeah, nah, it doesn't work for me, but as, as far as like their albums go though, I mean, their next album benefit is probably, it's probably my favorite tall album. Okay. And I can see that. I, that's, I think that's probably in the top five of most people's choices of, of Jethro. It's, de- it's definitely a darker album. I would mm-hmm. say than than stand up was far more introspective. Yeah. which is probably why he Ian Anderson doesn't like a lot of songs on it. <laughs> <laughs> He's never been one to write songs that were more on an autobiographical level. He prefers yeah. to be more of an observer, uh, write songs in an observational way rather than introspectively. Yeah. But there's a lot of introspection going on in that album. Uh, specifically with uh, the song Sun, obviously very much, not that him and his dad were, estranged or anything but i think there was yeah. a there was a difference of of thinking just universal thinking between yeah. him and his father and it's brought up several times throughout his career but just in very minor very subtle ways uh there's a lot of songs about relationships breaking up because his first marriage was kind of on the on the cusp of ending it was i mean it, it went on for several more years but it just because of the touring schedule and everything else i think he was starting to notice it, uh yeah a decline in his first marriage mm-hmm. um, songs like alive and well and living in, which actually is only on if back then the originally it was only on the um, British print. Mm-hmm. It was not on the American print yeah. pressing, which I think the, the song in place of it was, was it inside? I think inside wasn't on the British, but it was on the American. And it was yeah, one of those, it was, it was one of those. Was but uh he hates that song. He thinks it's garbage. And I oh, love really? that song. I mean, it's not, I don't, I don't consider you the most impartial person when it comes to Jethro Tull though, but. Well, I mean, you can, it'd be tough to find too many people, at least in our, in, in the immediate vicinity of, of who, you know, your people, you know, people you're surrounded by who've listened to these songs more than me. Yeah. I mean, I've, I I can't I couldn't even tell you how many times I've heard each of these songs, so at least as far as being able to break them down, I'd say I'm yeah I may not be I may not be uh, impartial as far as my opinion of them, but I've I've listened to them so enough. No, I I get it. I get to it. To see what's good and what's bad in them. So the um, it it was interesting about about benefit was uh, that Ian Anderson said that it was a darker album mainly because the the pressures that they were under well that he was under um because they were in the middle of a an extensive u.s tour mm-hmm. and also his frustrations with kind of the music industry as a whole at the time was really kind of where the where it was kind of toned down to that darker side mm-hmm. well Which like i think i think it ended, up, ended up being a great album because of yeah that. well a lot of times i mean there will come up with a couple other albums where there were stresses within the band and within the around that area you know the the group of people making the music mm-hmm. and for their from their opinions they're of the music that would be lower but i think it, it produced good music maybe yeah. even arguably better than music when they're firing on all cylinders together you know mm-hmm. but um they're uh yeah there's a lot of with um the, with benefits specifically i think there's a lot more of ex- experimentation going on too but it's also a very english sounding album yeah um you know kind of on par with growing from the stand-up to, to, to benefit 
Uh, what, what's your what's your favorite track on the album? Because you said it's your favorite album. I'm just curious what your favorite track on it is. Oh shit, I'd have to look at it. Um, probably. I don't know. Probably. I mean, the whole first side of it, the album is really good. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, yeah, my favorite song is on is on the first side, but it, my second favorite song is on the second side. Which one's your second favorite one on the second side? Uh, uh, playing time. Okay, yeah, that's definitely a good one. Yeah, because I mean, every 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 song on the album is good for sure. Right. Uh, my my favorite song on the album is for Michael Collins, Jeffrey and Me, because it's yeah. about the. Uh, it's a it's a interesting observational song from the perspective of michael collins being in the in the lem mm-hmm. while you know buzz aldrin and uh uh neil armstrong were going down to the to the moon's surface yeah in 1969 uh, it's it's a very unique kind of take on those on that that particular moment in, in human history and i i really mm-hmm. enjoy that song a lot so but well, that kind of takes us to aqualong Right. Yeah. Now, right, we're now up to 1971. Uh, Jethro Tull's fourth album. Now, it's their first um, uh, multi, it's their first platinum album in the U S yeah. mm-hmm. uh, both stand up and benefit both went gold in the U S but uh, Aqualung was their first platinum album. Yep. And I think Aqualung is the album that most people are going to remember them by. Um, Which is funny because it's not even, it's not their highest charting album either, but no, but it's it that for some reason, that's the album people are going to remember them by. Yeah. What is their highest charting? Isn't it the thick as a brick? Yeah. Thick as a brick reached number one. Yeah. Uh, number, number one in the U S number five in the UK. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. Aqualung is another, I mean, there isn't, you're not going to find, I'm an apologist no matter what. I, you're, there's not going to be an album that I say is bad. Um, Aqualung is not in my top five yeah. of Jethro Tull albums, but like I said, it's the album that's going to be that people are going to be most. It's going to be most familiar to anyone mm-hmm. that's that they know Jethro Tull. They're going to know Aqualung. Mm-hmm. They may not know anything else, but they'll not know Aqualung. Surprisingly enough, there's only two two singles released off of it, and it's you know him forty three and Locomotive Breath, which mm-hmm. a lot of people have heard. At least people that are our age or older. I'm sure probably remember locomotive breath, but the song Aqualung is probably the most memorable song off the album. And it wasn't even a single off of it. Right. Well, and you know, what's funny is there is a company and there was a company that made scuba gear called Aqualung. Yeah. They made a product they called an Aqualung. Mm-hmm. So Ian Anderson didn't know that when he wrote the album. And, and for those who don't know, it's one of the few Jethro Tull songs where lyrically it's only partially written by Ian Anderson. Yeah. He took notes. His wife at the time uh, was a photographer and she would take just pictures of people on the street and parks and stuff. And she had taken a picture of a homeless man and the, the lyrics specifically the first couple lines in the song Aqualung were just notes that she had jotted down. She had written, the, written down. Yeah. For the, for the images. And when Ian Anderson saw those, he took those notes because they, they applied to that image of the homeless man that he was going for, for that song or he was writing the song about. Yeah. And uh, so it's one of the few songs that has a, uh, a secondary writing credit on it. Just, there's not yeah. that many in the Jethro Tull catalog. And that's just, that, that was one. And it's, uh, it's one of their biggest hits on top of that. It's uh it's also, pretty widely considered one of like the first true concept albums also even though right. ian anderson 
says it's not, but well, it, I, I can I can definitely see a theme through the album. There's which, there's thematic continuations for sure, but overall, there's if you take out the some of the themes, there's really no concept there because you've got um, Aqualung the song Aqualung about the homeless man, Cross-Eyed mm-hmm. Mary about the child prostitute. Their inner circles are very similar. And he's even mentioned it in the song, mm-hmm. but then you jump to cheat day return. And that's a song about him going home to visit a sick dad. Yeah. And then you got mother goose, which is a, just kind of a whimsical song about, I don't even know what it's, it's just a whimsical song. It doesn't really have any connection to the other things. Well, outside of you, Ian and, and, and Ian Anderson and the, probably the rest of the band, most people in the music community consider it a, a, a concept. Well, but I see I'm breaking that down. So, I mean, we're, we're not even through the first side of the album and only two songs have a, a theme to them. The other songs don't, aren't connected. So you've got cheap day return song about him going home. Mother goose. It's, it, I, I, I think it's more, me, it's, it's kind of the least the way I understand it. It's, it's kind of two different themes. Side A kind of has a theme and side B kind of has a theme. But, okay. Well, let me continue. So you got two songs and then four songs that have nothing to do with those two songs. Up to me is not about, has no connection to those other songs. Then you jump to side two and you've got my God, which has a religious theme to it, or Mm -hmm. at least an opinion of religion on it. And then you've got uh, slipstream or him 43 again, very religious slipstream. God's mentioned, but it's not, there's no connection. There's no, my God. you You don't have to get so defensive about it. I mean, I'm just telling you what, every other music critic says at least well, music critic from the time well I, you know how I, and i'm sure you kind of feel the same way many music critics are not the ones you want to go to to ask about music sometimes but a lot of the times they can be correct i mean i i i've i mean i've never you're right i i don't think it's a definitive concept album like yeah. the wall something that's like obvious right. but i think you can i i think the entire album has not only a, 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 a stylistic resemblance, but it also has themes that, like you said, carry through the album. Mm. Like I said, I'm not saying that they, they intended to, they, it's not like Ian Anderson sat down and said, you know what? I'm going to write a concept album. Right. I, I think it just kind of came, came across that way. But the funny thing is that's what kind of led to thick as a brick. Right. Because everyone called it a concept album and he's like, no, it's not a concept album, mm-hmm. but since you like that, I'll make it a fucking concept album. Yeah. We're gonna, we're and, gonna... and, and it, thick as a brick was deliberately over the top concept album as a result of their, yeah, of their opinion yeah. or the opinions that were being thrown at them um, about Aqualung's perceived concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, getting into thick as a brick now, this thick as a brick is my favorite of all the tall albums by far it's but the funny the funny thing is speaking of critics at the time there were some critics that liked it but got like very mixed reviews but the funny thing is like in retrospect i think thick as a brick i think is widely considered one of the best and greatest progressive rock albums of the 70s it's by a lot of standards yes absolutely um oh so you agree with the critics on that part just i'm just well but no i'm I'm just double checking thanks ian (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm agreeing because I've heard that from other, from people who aren't, aren't critics, they're fans, they're progressive rock fans and they keep, and thick as a brick ranks very high in a lot of these groups. Yeah. 
You it's know, the, so, their, their first number one album in the U.S. also. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, with, and it's, it's kind of strange because it's, it's a concept album, mm-hmm. but the concept of the album is, is that is on the outside of the album. It's not in the music. It's not in the song itself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The song, the concept is, is that the words to Thick as a Brick were written by this fictional character called Gerald Bostock, who was an eight-year-old mm-hmm. boy, actually was 10 years old, pretended to be eight to win a, uh, under 10 or a youth poetry competition won it for the epic poem thick as a brick it was taken the award was taken away from him under controversy and the band Jethro Tull is going to make an album with that poem as their lyrics to the song that's the whole concept of the album mm-hmm. and as a result of that they made this very unique album cover that opens up and is a full-blown newspaper yeah a fictional newspaper uh, called the Linwell uh, or St. Cleve Chronicle. And mm-hmm. it's a Linwell publishing. And uh, every article in the paper was written by a different member of the band. And they, yeah. you know, it was, it was put together to make it look like a very small town, small English town periodical. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think the album cover is, more unique than the album concept itself. Oh, I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. And then and Ian Anderson has been quoted as saying it took them longer to put the album cover together than it did to record the actual album. They recorded the album in just under two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's from beginning. And they were, and Ian, Ian was writing the music as they were rehearsing and recording. Yeah. Uh, and if you listen to the album, if you've never listened to the album, I, I mean, obviously there's going to be people who can't tolerate 45, 45 minute long song, essentially. <laughs> and that's what it is. The song is 45 it minutes. Is. It's broken into two parts, but it is essentially one 45 minute long song. And a lot of people, I don't know if they can keep their, if their attention span can go that far. <laughs> a funny little story about this album though, real quick. Yeah. I'm sure you, obviously you know this, but uh, mm-hmm. so Ian and I, back in the day, we used to go to a pool hall on like a Thursday night and we'd, you know, play pool and drink beer and kind of just hang out. And mm-hmm. they had one of those jukeboxes where you could like pay and you could play whatever song you wanted. It so, was like an internet jukebox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we would put on thick as a brick and then leave. Because <laughs> <laughs> then they couldn't no one could play any songs for the next 45 fucking minutes. It was, it was terrible. It was great. I'm sure people fucking hated us. Yeah. Well, what was worse <laughs> is I actually did that in um yeah, you froze there for a second. Um, I, I did end. that. You did. You did here. Uh, Johnny's uh, Barn Grill in Belleville on the lake, uh-huh. which by, I think just closed, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the same thing in there with a uh, Dream Theater song. That, oh, really? The title track to the Octavarium album, Octavarium. Yeah. The song is like 30 minutes long, and it is pure progressive metal. <laughs> <laughs> and I put that you're, on. You're such about, an asshat. About five minutes into the album, I was like, all right, let's get out of here. <laughs> That's great. And the song I had to play for another 25 minutes. Um, um, I, I feel we were doing the, the pool hall a favor by playing Thick as a Brick because it's a fantastic song. The uh, Now, as far as like vinyl and stuff goes, there's actually an interesting thing. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, so there's a Spanish pressing from 76. It's on the Chrysalis Green label. And uh, it doesn't have, it has a continuous side B, but it doesn't have a continuous side A. There's actually, side A is broken up into five separate tracks and it actually is missing some musical interludes and lyrics. Really? Yeah. 
I did not know that. I do yep. know that uh, Thick as a Brick was the last uh, album to be first pressed on the Reprise label, mm-hmm. other than the Chrysalis label. Yep. Which came which which that. which that was actually in my notes here also. By right. Yeah. Yeah. Thick as a Brick was the last one. Yeah, I was gonna say though, if, if people listen to this are actually interested in that album, the uh, serial number is eight nine seven nine four dash ie, and it runs. You can pick up a VG or VG plus copy on Discogs for about thirty five bucks. But if you're looking for like a, if you want like a near mint copy of it, it'll run you about one hundred and twenty bucks. Hmm. If you're into like variants and things like that, but yeah, I wouldn't mind a variant, but I don't want one that's missing music. <laughs> you know. Some people are completists and they kind of like to have like those odd different things that, uh, like I said, probably uh, there's probably a, a lot of people out there probably don't know about that. Possibly. Yeah. I, well, I didn't know about that. I, I knew about the, the reprise labeling and, uh, because after that, I think even Aqualung and then the other albums, mm-hmm. when they were repressed, were repressed under the Chrysalis label, not under the reprise label. Yeah. But when they were originally pressed, they were pressed under a reprise, which was a um, Warner Brothers, I think, uh, mm-hmm. subsidiary. Yeah, it is. It is. So, and ironically, now they're they're back under the Warner Brothers um, umbrella. Umbrella. Three yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Thick as a Brick also was unique, and when they go went out to perform it live, they performed the whole album from beginning to end live 45 it actually turned out to be closer to i think 55 minutes because they actually added in some a lot more theatrics because it was a bit more of a theatrical performance for them yeah they had like little interludes and things like that um one moment where uh in be- i think it's in between Diggs brick part one and part two they have the band do like um like a news report like a weather report and stuff yeah and kind of a funny thing. It was really a take on what Monty Python was doing in the six, late 60s um, and very kind of British type of humor. They, and, he, and again, this is all quotes from Ian Anderson himself. Um, they really kind of tried to bring a bit of, of English humor to the performances and to the show. Mm-hmm. Um, in the middle of a song, Ian would just stop the music. And it was always a different point in the show because the phone would be ringing and he would answer the phone and I forgot who the character it was he would be, they'd asked for. And then someone would come out in a uh, scuba suit with an aqualung, you know, a, a scuba tank on, out, take the phone and answer it and walk off the stage. Hmm. That was the play on the aqualung thing. Yeah. Uh, so just a little bit of theatrics. But if you listen to the music, there's a lot of complex stuff going on in that music. And to know, to be able to learn it, play it every night for a year and a half, in its entirety it says a lot about the group of guys playing this music mm-hmm. in my opinion and I, and i'm not alone that's not just you know a fan you know blowing smoke it's there's a lot of there's a lot of bands that couldn't have done that it's definitely a long piece of music to play that's sort of damn sure. right and a lot of different changes going on that are not they're they're, they're natural when you hear them but they're not natural to change when you're just playing it straight through, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's probably one of the reasons why it's my favorite Jethro Tull album. Um, now coming off of that album and off the success of that album, I think the intention was always to do another concept album, but they, they went with the intention of not doing another 45 minute long song. Yeah. And, uh, the tax code in Britain 
was draconian at best. The on earned income, it was eighty-seven percent of your earned income mm-hmm. was taxed. Yeah. And on unearned income, meaning investments and things like that, it was ninety-eight percent. So as a result, their accountants and their managers just convinced the band to go into what's called tax exile. All the band, all the British bands. Uh, all, they all did at the time. They all did it. The Stones, Beatles, everyone did it back then. So they, they went to uh, France. And, well, actually, they, they tried to get citizenship, or re- like um, residency in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And then while they were waiting for that to go through, they were in France. And that's where they were attempting to record their next album. And they got about 50 minutes worth of music recorded in this place that they ended up getting food poisoning (laughs) multiple times. The equipment kept breaking down. It was all broken when they got there. And because it was out in the country, it took forever to get people out to fix the equipment. So it was just one thing after another. They ended up getting their, their Swiss citizenship and the very next day flying back to England. Yeah because they just couldn't do it anymore. And when they got back, they decided, Ian Anderson said, you know what, let's just, we're just going to scrap everything we've done and we're just going to do a whole new album. Mm -hmm. And aside from a few musical concepts, which you know of, uh, what we get is a passion play. Mm -hmm. That's the next album. Uh, What was left behind was was affectionately referred to as the Chateau Disaster Tapes, because it was recorded in the Chateau de de Horvel, yeah, something like that. Um, so, which is also where Elton John had recorded "Honky Tonk" something. I forgot what the <laughs> name of that album is. And Cat Stevens recorded um, "Catch a Bullet Four There. Yeah. So it wasn't. A, it was. An, it was a place that other artists had used, but it was just trash by the time they got to it. So. Um, and they recorded some decent music there too, but. Yes, and in my opinion, now granted, I've I, I have the benefit of hindsight here. Yeah. I think some of the musical themes that were present on the Chateau disaster tapes are better than what they came up with for passion play. I would agree. That being I, said, I, I, I would think I, and I would say a, a lot of critics probably agree with you also. Well, I, cause, I, cause, no, cause the, cause the critics, really, the critics absolutely hated the album. Right. I don't think they really got it, but that being said, the band didn't really like the album either. Yeah. Overall. But the funny, the funny thing is, it. The funny thing is, even with all the the negative reviews that the album had, it still reached number one in the U.S. And okay. actually, this this album got so much bad publicity that the band actually had to do press conferences afterwards to explain where the band was going to go in the future. Right. Well, how, Terry Ellis Ellis had came up with this idea to keep the name the band in the papers. He said that they're going to quit as a result of their um, bad press, mm-hmm. which is not what's going to happen. So Ian Anderson had to go and correct that the very next day. And as a result, had to do a bunch of press conferences to say, look, yeah, what's, this is not, we're not getting the best reviews, but we're not giving up, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. The, like uh, the, there's a couple of ones I saw the uh, melody maker who was a big, you know, I mean, they were a mm-hmm. big uh, reviewer at the time said that uh, when they were in their review for the album, it said music must touch the soul. A passion play rattles with emptiness. That's, <laughs> that's a pretty bad one and uh another another one review said it was the uh, the album was the fall of jethro tall uh rolling stone said it was a, po- a pop potpourri of paradise lost and winnie the pooh 
among many yeah, other that's literary actually, that's pretty accurate actually <laughs> <laughs> among other literary uh resources not to mention a vast array of musical ideas uh derivative of influences as far flung as purcell flamenco and modern jazz and the final judge of the album is and it is an expensive tedious nonsense piece of music that's a bad review <laughs> that's yeah that's, the I mean, first that's part bad. of it the first part of it's pretty accurate though yeah. i mean it is the the lyrics are essentially a modern kind of modern day retelling of paradise lost mm-hmm. uh, as far as the um the journey through the afterlife and then if you throw in the hair who lost his spectacles that's the winnie the pooh part of it mm-hmm. for sure i mean i i kind of agree uh with some of the reviews i mean i i definitely feel that this album and their next album were the low points of the 70s for the band but really you feel that way about war child as well oh they're both good albums don't get me wrong i, I both like i like both albums but compared to everything else that they released in the 70s i think it was definitely subpar yeah uh i the art the band themselves they especially especially since i've gone since i've i've had a bit like you said in retrospect i've heard the stuff that they recorded right originally because originally though it was going to be a double album yeah yeah and that's what it was a double album would be a double album of uh, standalone songs but still have a a singular concept but but a lot of the concept came did filter into war the passion play and war child as well yeah real quick i do need to say if you're watching this on youtube and you're wondering why i'm playing with a screwdriver it's because i broke my microphone stand like my stand comes apart mm-hmm. well before we started recording i was trying to fix it and it was just i needed something to fidget with so i was playing right. with my screwdriver right. well just, i just in we case you're watching this like why is that why the hell does he have a screwdriver in his hand we could have just pointed out that you you always have a screwdriver in your hand because you're always waiting for that one moment where you snap <laughs> and stab, stab you in the damn eye <laughs> <laughs> Because we know it's coming. It's 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 bound to come eventually. Eventually. Yeah. So, um, so where we leave off. So, um, Passion Play came out, and again they went out on tour and did it all from beginning to end. Yeah. The band overall is not terribly happy with that album. Um, but but saying that though, like a lot of the reviews, I read some pretty harsh reviews of the album but reviews in retrospect i think have definitely been more friendly to the album than they definitely were when it was released yes it's definitely an album that over time has earned respect um even from critics who panned it back then have come along and said you know i was really harsh on that album yeah i get it i love the album but anyone who says that it's it's a low point or their least favorite album by the band I don't, I don't question it. I don't criticize it because I can understand why some people have issues with that album. Again, though, I have the benefit of hindsight. And when I listen to it, I can actually listen to now the Chateau disaster album, which it is, it's an album now and listen to passion play. And together they almost kind of make the double album that was intended in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because even though Chateau, the Chateau Disaster tapes, the theme wasn't going for this for a Paradise Lost type of thing. Mm-hmm. It was using the theater as a representation for life. Mm-hmm. Whereas pa- and then Passion Play is the play, which is the death, the afterlife. Yeah. So it, it by accident, purely by accident, it becomes that double album that maybe would have been we were you know 
to some degree would have been what we would have gotten if the Chateau disaster tapes had continued. Yeah. So, the, uh, and also a passion play kind of marked the beginning of the steep decline as far as charting goes in the UK, because mm-hmm. I mean, coming off of thick as a brick, which was five in the UK, the passion play dropped on to 16 and they kind of stayed the same thing with their next album, which was 14. But then they dropped on to 20, 25. I mean, so it's like, yeah, they never they, really hit number ones ever again. No. So, I mean, at least in the primary, in the mainstream. But, but th- this kind of marked where it kind of flip-flopped, where they were, prior to this, they were charting generally higher in the mm-hmm. UK than they were in the US. And after right. this, they it, it, they were charting higher in the US than they were in the UK. I think with Thick as a Brick, even though the humor was probably a bit different for, and, and this was, again, something Ian Anderson has said, he wasn't entirely sure if um, if the American audiences got the humor of thick as a brick. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that the Japanese definitely didn't get it. Well, yeah, but people liked it enough. And there was enough because of that say Monty Python ish type of humor that it was, it was likable enough to, even if you didn't get it, you kind of still liked it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with passion play, there's no humor in it. Yeah. at all so it's difficult to get your mind through those complex changes if you're not sold on the concept or along for the ride because you're really trying to just sit and think about what is going on what, what is this all about because it is dark no, i get it it's dark yeah. so i think overall i think if dick is a brick is a hit passion play is kind of the counterpoint it's like the light in the dark of that period you know that that concept overblown super progressive rock jethro toll version you have your good your light side and your dark side and you know you can either like them or not like them yeah. but you know but then so going the, into war child which was 1974 mm-hmm. a lot of themes that ian anderson was playing with with passion play he was kind of jotting down these ideas from a from a theatrical standpoint and was actually kind of thinking that maybe he could they could come up with a movie and yeah it was actually yeah originally it was intended to be a a double album Mm -hmm. in with an accompanying film and they actually brought in um uh john john cleese Mm -hmm. to as as the humor consultant for the the film that was going to go along with war child right because i think they were shooting for something um which you know years later Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, I think, did better than Jethro Tull could have done ever, um, was this idea of, you know, good versus evil on a, on a humor scale, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, with Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, they did the book Good Omens. Yeah. And it's the, the end of the world is about to happen, and these two angels who have been living on Earth, one, one's an angel, one's a demon, decide they don't really want – they, they're the ones who have to kind of get things going, and they mm-hmm. don't want it to end. They're like, well, we're kind of having fun here. Let's, you know. yeah. But I think that's kind of the concept that Ian Anderson was going with. He was going for this, this dichotomy between God and Satan fighting over you know, man's eternal soul, but there being some kind of a – a humor to it like a mm-hmm. you know comedy of errors sort of thing yeah but a lot of music was written um orchestral music was written for for the proposed film yeah. but when all the film stuff fell through they were left with okay well we're a band let's just put out another album and some yeah, of the exactly mus- musical themes found their way into the war child album and one could argue that even 
saying that Chateau Disaster and Passion Play could be two albums and a double album, War Child could actually be connected to it as a trilogy of albums because you've got the, um, the theater as representing life and Chateau Disaster. You've got the actual play representing the afterlife. War Child is the societal side of it and yeah. things that lead us to the mistakes that are made for those other two things. Um, and music and the, thematically and musically, there's a lot of, of uh, wrap around there that you don't find in any of the other tall albums before or after those three albums, mm-hmm. you know, specifically even just in, in certain choices for instruments, alto sax. There's a lot of sax in, in uh, passion play and there's a lot of sax in war child. And I can tell you this, I don't know why he did it in war child, but, in Passion Play, when Steve Wilson was getting ready to do his, mm-hmm. his mix of that, his mix of it. Ian Anderson told him or asked him if he'd be willing to take all the sacks out. Oh, really? Out of Passion Play, yeah. And Stephen Wilson didn't want to. He wanted to try and keep it as original as possible. Mm-hmm. So he did a, a comparison, and there really wouldn't have worked unless Ian Anderson had put flute into it second yeah. as a secondary thing. Mm-hmm. And he had already done that with the Chateau Disaster tapes, and Steve Wilson didn't like that. Yeah. He took all that flute out of the Chateau Disaster tapes, which, for better or worse, I don't like it. It feels empty now. Yeah. It's just demos now. But um, So if you listen to Chateau Disaster, listen to the Nightcap version. Which is, the, yeah, that's always the version I, I like. Right. The, I mean, I like what Steve Wilson did. I like some of his choices. Yeah. And there are some tracks that I will listen to his versions over the Nightcap versions. But overall, any, any track that's flute-heavy don't listen to the Steve Wilson versions. Cause it's just, it's like yeah. listening to a demo and I just couldn't, I couldn't take it. But, and the, and, uh, with, with, with war child though, I would say that the, uh, the critics were definitely, I'd say equally as harsh on this album, especially Rolling Stone, man. I don't know who the, who the reviewer was for Rolling Stone, but they really, not only did they hate a passion play, I think they equally hated war child. The, uh, the one review I pulled up, it said, uh, it says each handcrafted track comes chock full of schmaltz, strings, tutti frutti sound effects, and flute toots to boot, not to mention Anderson's warbling lyricism. Remember, tall rhymes with doll. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> See, I, 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 again, War Child is another album where people, if they don't really get it or like it, I don't really fault anyone for that. Hey, you know what though? Even with the reviews they got, it still hit number two in the U.S. It right. went gold, and it has one of their um, heaviest rotated songs, uh, yeah. at least in American radio, uh, on it, which is "Bungle and Jungle." It's yeah. not really my favorite song, but no, it's not. It gets heavy rotation, and even to this day, which you know, for better or worse. Yeah. But overall, I like War Child because I think. Um, Martin's playing is top notch in it. I mean, not as not to the extent that we get in '75, the next album. But I think Martin's guitar playing was really toned back for Passion Play, mm-hmm. at least for Passion Play, not Chateau Disaster. For Passion Play, for sure. Yeah. And I think in War Child we get more good heavy riffs from Martin, more real guitar mm-hmm. in there, and there's a lot less sax, which is good. But there's some just really good songs on it. You know, the, maybe having the single song structure is is a better option because I think 
you could he could have just as easily have run all those songs together. A couple songs even do kind of run together, mm-hmm. but I think having them as separate pieces really kind of really works for that album. Yeah. So. But the funny thing is, then then you get into Minstrel in the Gallery, which is 1975. I mean, if Benefit isn't my isn't my favorite, it would have to be Minstrel. I mean, yeah, it's a fantastic and, album. And Minstrel from, begin, from a- beginning to end. Yeah, Minstrel comes in as a very, very close second to to Thick as Bricks number one. And it was, I think, musically, it was much more in line with what they were doing in the beginning of the seventies with, or late sixties, early seventies. It, it's more like it's more like stand up, benefit, Aqualung than it is anything like War Child or, or anything that came after that. Absolutely, and a lot of uh, a lot of it comes from the fact that it's kind of it's kind of an Ian Anderson solo album to start. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a band effort once everything's out there, but that album started life really just Ian Anderson with a guitar. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Right. When he wrote that, I mean, he didn't go in like with thick as a brick with passion play with war child went in with, okay, every day comes in. Okay. I've got this little piece of music. Let's work on this. Or I got these lyrics. I want to work this out. Yeah. He came up with more complete. Songs. This was, yeah. He wrote most of the music and said, yeah. okay, let's, let's do it. But this, yeah. this is it. And there's a lot more instrumental or not instrumental, but a lot more acoustic pieces on this mm-hmm. album as well. And, and, and I think it really worked. I mean, even I, I hate going back to keep going back to the critics, but the critics really, really enjoyed the album. Mm-hmm. Well, and as they should. I mean, it is it is a better album than War Child. It is a better album than Passion Play. Yeah. There's no question about that. And it's also Jeffrey Hammond's last album. It is Jeff- Jeffrey Hammond's last album, and that was that was expressed to Ian while the album was being made. That I'm gonna I'll do this album. And yeah. I'll do tour. Then, I, then I'm, I'm done. Because yeah. at the end of the day, Jeffrey Hammond was not a musician. Yeah. Um, considering how little he understood music and how much how little <laughs> of a musician he was. He's a fantastic player. Yeah. And basically he was one of those musicians where you show him what to do and he can do it. Yeah. And that's essentially what they did because everyone else in the band had musical training. Yeah. So they'd say, okay, well, you know, we're writing this, do this, but okay, I can do that. Boom, boom, boom. And he could do it. And he did it very well. In fact, I think some of, some of his bass lines are some of the best in, in all the recordings at all. Mm. He's not the best bassist. Glenn Cornick. Glenn Cornick was the best, best bass player they had. Um, but some of the bass lines, because, I mean, obviously we don't know. We don't know what Glenn Cornick would have done with the bass lines for Thick as a Brick or, yeah. you know, or, or Minstrel in the Gallery. But some of the yeah. bass lines that Jeffrey had to do um, for someone who isn't a musician, quite complex and quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, especially now that we have the, the benefit of listening to the Steve Wilson remixes where everything's kind of balanced and you can hear the bass lines way better. And I was actually telling you this the other day when I listened to War Child. There's some bass lines in there that I never even heard before. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, that's really good. It's not just bass following beat. You know, there's real bass going on there, real as as an instrument, not just a background instrument. Because mm-hmm. you know what they always say: if a good a good bass player, you don't know they're there. And that's I've never. I I've wouldn't never, say that. I've heard I, several I, musicians I, say that, but I don't. I, th- I don't agree I, with it. I think now I might be wrong because i'm a bass player but i i think like some of the best players take flea for example i mean yeah. it's like he's not, i don't think he's ever played a song where you the bass wasn't a key part of the music but you have to understand that that's us that's us coming into to i'm talking about if you look back at like jazz bands and and old swing bands 
You don't really. Oh hear man, it. bullshit with jazz. De- bass is definitely a big, pe- a big part of jazz. I'm just telling you what people say. I don't agree with it. I've heard multiple people say that. That saying is yeah. old shit. And but, as far as like, I mean, it, Jeffrey Hammond was, I think, a serviceable, ba- serviceable bass player. I think a more skilled bass player probably could have done a lot more with the maybe. space he was given. Perhaps, um, but I was never really impressed by his base work. He was a, he was a kind of a flamboyant kind of guy. He was a, mm-hmm. definitely a, a character on stage more so than probably anyone before or really after him really was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But his first love was painting. And I mean, that's yeah. what he's done since he left all yeah. um, is, is he's a painter. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, it, he was there really as just, um, Glenn left the band and he needed a bass player and Jeffrey came along because he was his friend and he, yeah. and he could, again, could do what he, they asked him to it do. Kinda, he'd played in the band before. And in, right. And he had been with the, with um, some of those guys a, before. A, a, previ- with, a previous incarnation. Right. Um, with Barry Barlow, who was on drums. He, they'd all yeah. been there. John Evans, they'd all been there. So yeah. it was, you know, kind of the old boys club. Yeah. So yeah. And then the gallery was, you know, is in a top-notch level as far as the category of, of Tull catalog. Yeah, it, it, it has my favorite Jethro Tull song on it for sure. Uh, which is Muse. Baker Street Muse, yeah. I mean, it's a, and it's an example. And yeah, this is actually a quote from Ian Anderson. If he wishes he could have written Baker Street Muse before he wrote Passion Play, because yeah. he said that Baker Street Muse was us doing a long-form song the right way. Yeah. And he really felt that that was more of what passion play should have been. Yeah. No, I, I get it. I get stripped it. down. It could still be long and still have the, the musical changes in it. Mm-hmm. But as, because um, Baker street muse is the third longest song tells ever had That's yeah. 16 minutes, 16 and a half minutes. Yep. Um, it, it doesn't feel that long when you listen to it. Though. No, it really doesn't. It, it really flows very well. Yeah. Um, and I would agree. It's probably the best, al- best song on that album for sure. Now getting into their next album, which is Too Old to Rock and Roll, Too Young to Die, I was, it's got some good songs on it, but I was never a huge fan of this album either. Mm-hmm. This is, yeah, it was kind of Ian Anderson's, um, not an answer to or a rebuttal of, but an acceptance of what was kind of growing in the music industry. Yeah, And it was the the punk thing. You know, Tull had been what is considered a progressive rock band now at this point for five years. They were wrapped up in the in the likes of bands like Yes and Emerson Lake mm-hmm. and Palmer. Very out there, very extravagant music in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, whether good or bad, but music that is not anywhere near mainstream. Yeah. And you've got these kids coming out who barely play an instrument in a garage and they're rocking out with two minute long songs that have you know, no chord progression whatsoever. Just, no. you know, just punk. What is, what yep. we know is punk. And the album is a concept album. It's their last concept album. It's their last concept album. I would argue that it's not, but it, it is. It, it is. their last official. But uh, yeah, it, it, and the concept is, is basically the old rocker, the old. Well, the I would say, it goes, I would say it kind of goes beyond that. I would say it's more about how the music, industry is in music business is cyclical 
and oh, even, yes, absolutely. E- e- even as uh music styles fall out of fashion they kind of eventually come back around and are popular again or kind of or so they kind of thought so at the time well and it's Cause true because I mean, things proven like, it to be true things things like disco kind of never were popular again thank god really though uh, if you think about I, it I, a I, lot of the pop yeah. music is very disco-y it's all about that dance music you know yeah, i guess songs so. that you can dance to that's never so. ever gone away or yeah, i guess you're right because it kind of did morph into new wave and then things like that oh no so no, I no. Guess. new wave was probably more of a morph out of light progressive rock more than disco no i would say 80s new wave music definitely had a disco taste to it mm, i think it had more of a progressive taste to it yeah. i think you really have to we'll, we'll to, just have to we'll, we'll just have to disagree on that one well you're i think you don't dig you're looking at the surface of it i think you need to dig deeper into some of that <laughs> that new wave stuff no i'm dead serious i listen to that shit do you mm-hmm. do you yeah, do you find I, yourself listening to duran duran all the time not or all the time so i do Echo like some or i do like some duran duran i mean i'm not yeah. a big fan of 80s music in general but right i used to See, i like that I used, stuff i used to i mean i grew up i grew up listening to that stuff yeah i would i would say that there's probably more in common with progressive music than it is with disco but there's a lot of pop from the 80s that i would say is definitely more influenced by disco but not not the new because because i think disco had always had a pop flavor to it because pop music existed before disco. of course of course rock is there's a lot of rock that has a pop flavor to it but just because it's pop doesn't mean hello nickelback right exactly but that's <laughs> you wouldn't say that that's disco-esque yeah. is what i'm saying is musically speaking if you if you really listen to it new wave it has more of a connection to what progress light progressive was in the 70s more than what disco was in the 70s sure okay if you say so i'll, I'll give you a list of songs <laughs> to listen to to, to, to I'm, and i'm sure i've listened to all of them i don't i doubt it but uh you do understand Seriously. my, I have an extremely wide musical background. Name, name one song by Duran Duran that's not Hungry Like a Wolf or Rio. I don't know. Those are two great songs, though. <laughs> they are good songs, <laughs> you know? Oh, well, so, like I said, I, I, don't, I don't listen to them anymore, but I grew up listening right, to them. So, yeah, right. I've heard all that shit before. So, okay. But, I mean, that, that aside, I, you're right, though. As, as far as uh, what was going on with Too Old to Rock and Old Too Old Young to Die was the concept of... I would say it's a muddled concept for sure, but well, it's I, I think it, it plays out in a much more clear cut. Uh, I mean, I I, I, understand, play. I understand what where the concept was going, but I feel like a lot of people didn't. Which is silly because if you own the record, you open it up. There's a comic book comic strip that shows you I know. the concept it's I all right it. there it's very more clear-cut than thick as a brick and aqua or uh, passion play and definitely more clear-cut as a concept than aqua ever could be mm-hmm. so i don't, understand I don't how know about that well trouble. i don't know i see aqua definitely as a concept album but okay well i think you're just you're just like to be contrarian but no <laughs> not <laughs> at all shut up you're being contrarian right now <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next album. Uh, well, see this, and this is where uh, Tell kind of becomes more of what it really, what it, what Ian Anderson wanted it to be, and that's. I mean, it's it's not. He doesn't like folk, but it is more English. This is the most English album you're well, ever gonna get. Well, me. their next three albums, I mean, they consider them a a, a folk, folk trilogy. trilogy, and I would disagree with that to a degree. Really? Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe with Stormwatch, but right. definitely. 
songs from the wood and, and heavy horses i feel like you can really there's a lot of folk elements you, there you could almost put those two albums together really musically and i like and I, I, I love both the albums but right i think you should listen to, to them back to back one day because they're you're right there's a lot of similarity but there's a lot of difference too heavy horses of course, of course there's, they're two se- they're two separate albums ian right. obviously there's difference to it but i'm saying two they're musically they're both similar albums it's more so than what Stormwatch is in that in the the quote-unquote you know folk trilogy right no I, I guess i can agree with that but yeah songs from the wood and one thing that you should point out the songs from the wood was the first time probably since thick as a brick that it was a very band united album everyone kind of came in with certain musical ideas over what ian had written those demos mm-hmm. that ian had given them and kind of really became part of the of the process the recording process it's definitely a a much better it's a a lot better of a constructed album musically Mm -hmm. for sure than too old rock and roll was oh by far by far i won't disagree with that um and by the way i mentioned rolling stone earlier rolling stone said that uh in the review of this album that it was uh it it was probably their best album ever yeah Oh, well, at the, songs, at from the, the time. songs from the at Wood the is in my top five. It's probably number five, actually, mm-hmm. um, of the tall catalog. And it, it had really, I mean, unanimously positive reviews for this album. Yeah. Overall, yeah, it was a huge. It was, I wouldn't say a huge success as far as uh, charting goes, but it was a huge success as far as. It was number eight in the U.S. and 13 in the U.K., so it was their better, their highest uh, charting album in the U.K. since Thick as a Brick. Okay. Yeah, so that I mean that says a lot, really. Uh, and I think it was kind of the band that I, if you follow the band from its beginning to to today, there's this odd like ebb and flow with popularity with the band. Mm-hmm. They're one minute they're very out of out of favor or not. No one gives a shit about them, and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, look, there's that band. Just for tall, they, they're really they good. become relevant again yeah it's oddly relevant and where they weren't two years ago you know what i yeah. mean back then it was it was within a couple of years now it's yeah. decades <laughs> but uh it's uh that was the period kind of a peak of uh, or a new peak of popularity mm-hmm. for them where they were on all the hit pop shows and you know, yep. getting you know top of the pops and all that fun shit and i don't know i mean i i know you like the album what what, what do you think about it I mean, I could say tons of stuff about it, but I think musically, I I think it's Ian Anderson at his best in terms of structure, and it's the mm-hmm. band at its best of bringing that structure to. No, I completely agree. To, to fruition. Yeah, I completely agree. So. Okay. Yeah. But the so the interesting thing was, you know, you were, you were talking about punk and stuff like that earlier with with their next album, Heavy Horses. Um, you know, it was musical trends definitely in in 78 were moving to a new era they're yes. moving in a completely new direction and with with like i said with punk and the emergence of of new wave and the band with with heavy horses made a very concerted effort to not appear as though they were moving in a similar direction they said you know look everyone's going off and over here to the left we're gonna stay in our little pocket right here yep. and that's what and that's kind of why i say i put uh, heavy horses and songs and wood kind of together 
because it was it was an effort to kind of say, look, I understand that the music industry is pulling everything to a to a different uh, uh, direction. Now, not really the industry, but listeners are pulling music in a different direction, and we're just kind of st- going to stay right here. Mm-hmm. And heavy and horses, and, and it was heavy horses was the second album in a row that garnered very positive, overwhelming reviews. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, I, they, they they succeeded in what they were trying to do. Oh, I agree. And I, they never, I don't think they've ever really um, followed what the mainstream was doing. Uh, we'll, we will get to that. Cause I, I very, I, I will argue with you on that one, but okay. here in a couple, here I'm in a couple curious to hear what you have to argue, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I have your horses is, is unique to me in a way. Cause I, I find that for a long time, I actually thought heavy horses was a very subpar album to songs from the wood. Really? Yeah, there's. I always found it kind of jarring in certain places. However, in you know, as I've grown older, I think I appreciate Heavy Horses slightly more mm-hmm. overall because I think musically, again, it's it's kind of like they go through these phases where they they hit a stride and they never want to repeat themselves. Yeah, but that stride does follow through to a degree, and it's it's either better than before or not as good. So passion play, think of a brick passion play would be the example of the finding a stride, but not succeeding coming up. Whereas yeah. I think with the songs from the wood to heavy horses, it's kind of the reverse where they, they, they found this moment where, okay, this is, these are the songs I'm writing as Ian Anderson. This is the songs I'm writing. These are the topics I'm addressing. And once he hits, gets to the heavy horses side of it, he's kind of in the flow of things. And, and I think it's, it's, it's hitting better. The, some of his opinions, cause heavy horses is very um, socially driven too. And a lot of his opinions are really coming through as far as um, agriculture, uh, environmental issues. And that really plays into song, uh, Stormwatch. Yeah. Um, but it really, I think he's kind of, he's firing in all cylinders writing wise. Once you hit heavy horses, I almost, there are times I go back and forth and think heavy horses is actually a better album than songs from the wood. Mm-hmm. No, they're, they're both fantastic albums yeah. equally. But, and uh, then, and then, and then when we kind of come to the, to the third part of that, you know, quote unquote folk trilogy. Right. And I don't fully get where they're going with Stormwatch. i mean there's definitely folk elements to it mm-hmm. but it's definitely not it's not as folk rock as either of the two albums before it no uh far more rock heavier rock flow to it I, that being said if, if if you had to take those three albums as a trilogy my favorite of those three is Stormwatch. Really? actually now that i think about it yeah um Stormwatch is, yeah, because if I were to, to label Thick as Bricks my number one, Mitchell Gary's number two, Stormwatch is my number three. Yeah. For whatever it's worth, this is, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, but this is an area where the band was a bit in a bit of turmoil at this point. Mm-hmm. John Glasgow, who had taken over for bass um, for Jeffrey. Jeffrey Hammond, yep. Yeah, was ill. Yeah, um, he had a, a heart defect. He had a heart defect, and was getting considerably worse, but he also wasn't changing his lifestyle at all too. No, he no. was and drinking he actually, heavily. And he only partying. appeared on a couple, a couple of songs on the album. Right. And 
but it was really stressing the band out because they had come, I mean, he'd only been there since 75, late 75. Mm-hmm. We're now at 19, late 78, early 79. Yeah. And he'd really integrated himself as a member of the band. He became, all those guys became good friends with him. But I don't think they really knew how to talk to him and try to yeah. get him to stop. You know, you, you've got a heart problem. You shouldn't be drinking. Yeah. Smoking as much. You shouldn't be out partying all, all hours of the night. I mean, he wasn't like a the traditional rock star druggie or anything, but yeah. he was living way above what his body could handle. A very poor lifestyle considering yes. his health. Exactly. Um, and not being available and not being there and the band not wanting to fire him either. Yeah. Even though they, in retrospect, a lot of the members, Barry Barlow has said it, Martin Barr has said it, Ian Anderson has said it. They probably should have fired him, yeah, in the hopes that it would it, wake him up. Which it, it, it wouldn't have. It probably wouldn't have. But it it, have. but ultimately, um, he ended up dying that year, mm-hmm. and from from that, he died like what two months? I want to say like two months after the album was released. It was either on either side of the album being released. Yeah, I don't know if it yeah. was before or after, but um, well, let's see here. It was uh, released I know it, uh, September of seventy nine, and where's his name at on here? And he died November of 79. Okay, so, well, yeah, so two it was after. two months. But he had those health problems had even gone back to late 78 because the um, Jethro Tull had done the first transatlantic live broadcast mm-hmm. um, in October of 78 from Madison Square Garden. And John Glasscock does not play on that in that yeah. show. It's Tony no. Williams playing bass no. on that show. Um, so his health problems have been consistently going on for well over a year at this point yeah and it really took a toll on the band it took a toll on ian a lot because he felt he actually kind of felt responsible responsible for it yeah and and just for not doing more Mm -hmm. it was more responsible in 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 an apathy kind of way he felt like what was i what he didn't really know he should have done more he feels maybe he should have i don't know but uh, it wouldn't have changed anything but yeah but you you can't it's hard to think about those things it's hard to say what could I have done differently and would it have changed anything? Because you don't know the answer to either one of those questions. The, um, I, I, I will say this, that I feel that Stormwatch to me is kind of, it, it definitely marks the end of an incredible decade mm-hmm. for Jethro Tull, where they made some really iconic music. And I feel that they really spend much of the next decade really trying to rediscover that same magic that they had in the seventies. I would say they spend the next decade trying to figure out who they are more than who well, the, they fit in. And, and the and the reason why I say they kind of rediscover it is because we will get to it eventually, but I feel like they kind of did go back to that earlier sound with catfish rising in, in 91. Yeah. And that's why I kind of say they kind of, and the, the same thing with, with, um, with rooster branches at 95 it had a much more 70s sound mm. than anything they did in the 80s but we'll yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get, get, to, we'll get to those yeah um after Stormwatch, i mean i want to say a little bit more about it just um in the sense that there are there are some musical things going on in Stormwatch that i don't think they had the band had done before and i don't think they've ever done since yeah and Again, like I said, Stormwatch comes in at a, at a strong number three in my top five of Jethro Tull albums, for sure. Um, without question and without fail. Yeah. 
there's a lot of people who disagree with me. I, and I, again, I don't fault anyone for that. That's why, but, that's why everyone has their own opinion. Right. Well, the, just cause you have an opinion doesn't mean it's right. And if, <laughs> if they have an opinion, that's, if, if you, Different if you, from you yours? well, for example, if you told me that you hated Stormwatch and you gave me reasons why you didn't like it, okay, then I, there's no reason I can argue with it. But there's people who would say, I don't like Stormwatch because it's the end of the seventies. It's not Aqualong. You know, those well, kind of opinions I, I don't I, have any respect for. I would say that I wasn't a huge fan of this album for a long time. I never felt it was a bad album. It was just, uh, eh. Yeah. I was, I never really, I don't know. I, it's definitely an album that's grown on me over the years for right. sure. Well, and you've just recently purchased this special edition vinyl. Yeah. I, I actually got mine it. before you did chucklehead. Yeah. By two weeks, actually. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I just got mine. In, well, when this is being released a week ago, yeah. um, well, but you've you've listened to it recently, and as have I. Mm-hmm. And what I mean has has your opinion really changed about it since you've been able to listen to it now, through the lens of Steve Wilson's remix too? Because I've got to admit, he did a great job on this. He one he too. did do a good job, and I feel that you know it, I don't think it's a really huge difference than the original. No, album. it's very subtle. It is very subtle. It, it is. It's not so like if you go back and listen to Steve Wilson's remix of Aqualung, I That's feel a it's a difference. much a much more drastic change than what the original was. Right. And Steve Wilson's remix of Aqualong is fantastic. Yes. But, it, but yeah, I don't feel there was that much of a difference. It's still a good album. No, it's very subtle, but I've known I noticed that um, there's just, it's just, it's finding those balances with, yeah. like you said, with bass lines and guitar mm-hmm. issues and flute too. Some of the flute was brought up to, to a slightly higher level. And yeah. it, it just, it, everything really just, works great and again i can't i can't say enough about steve wilson's remixes i wish he would go further and do more but it's not like he probably won't yeah he probably won't all right let's get into the well here's to to to, this is where we kind of diverge because i am not a fan of their music in the 80s okay overall like i said i'm gonna open my other that's fine uh here we uh trying to not make it so loud but well let me let me start it out with uh at the end of 79 and into early 80 the band was touring promoting stormwatch album ian anderson decided he wanted to make a solo album Mm -hmm. and ultimately it wasn't a matter of i'm better than anybody else or any of that stuff it was just it was just a a change change he wanted to work he wanted to work with different musicians yeah for just for for a change which i completely get so he went in the, he went and started writing songs. He recre- did recruit Bar- Martin Barr. He originally only recruited him to, write, to work on one song. Mm-hmm. But he ended up working on other songs because he couldn't find another guitar player who was free. He, had, he, he, yeah. he wanted to work with Jimmy Page. Wasn't available because they were still, I think Jimmy Page and was still, Led Zeppelin was still touring for their, they're doing their last tour. Yeah. Um, so he couldn't do, couldn't get Jimmy Page. I think he had even asked, I want to say he'd ask Brian May. Really? I think so. I think he asked Brian May and at least two other guitarists. But the two big ones were were Planton, um, or yeah, um, Jimmy Page, Jimmy, Jimmy Page, and Brian May. Yeah. But neither one of them were available. They were all touring with their own bands. So, yeah. so he basically ended up asking Martin to work on one song, but then Martin just kept working on other songs. Yeah. But he brought in a new keyboard player. Uh, he brought in a new drummer. 
And he, he used Dave Pegg, who had taken over for John Glasscock just on the tour for mm -hmm. Stormwatch. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that's a tall connection because he'd been playing with the band for six months. So it was hardly a, uh, you know, uh, a tall guy. You know, it was really just Martin was the only other tall member. So they worked on these songs. They recorded these songs. And mu musically, they're different from what Tall was doing. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, they, they flow like a Tall album. I get it. But at the time, they were very drastically different from what they were doing with the uh, albums previous. But the record company insisted that he make it a Tall album. Yeah. They and that was one thing. Yeah. And that was kind of the one thing that I didn't know for a long time was that uh, – I don't remember where, where I saw it. I don't remember if they, he talked about an interview I saw him do or, or if I read it somewhere, but I was kind of surprised that the, it was actually the record label that stepped in and said, no, you need to release this as a Jethro Tull album. Yeah. They, they said they weren't, they would not release an Ian Anderson album, yeah. which they is wanted that to be a Tull album. I, in retrospect, it should have been released as a, as a Ian Anderson album. And, I agree. I, and, and this is kind of, this is kind of where I was going with the whole, um, with the whole heavy horses issue. Mm -hmm. Whereas, with heavy horses, they made an effort to kind of steer clear of what the musical trend was. And then a and broadsword and the beast, they went like head over heels into the, the shit electronic uh, era. Or, uh, I think you need to listen or, to a again or synthesizer era. I think you need to listen to a again. A is not as synthesized as you think it is. Mark, uh, it's it's Mark, there. There's definitely a lot more synthesizer in it. There's a lot of synthesizer in Stormwatch too. Oh, well, there's definitely more of it in A. I, I would say it's not that much more, and that's someone who's listened to A a lot, even more recently. Oh no, I've listened. I think to you it. need. I've I think you need to. Um, yes, there's more of it because that's Eddie Jobson. Um, that's what he played. He wasn't a piano mm -hmm. player. He was a keyboard. Was, player. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, so yeah, I can maybe see a little bit, but overall. There's some hard-hitting rock out songs on that album. Um, I would say one of the better 80s songs of all time. There's two on that album that I think stand out um, as if I had to rank songs now, just individual songs, would be in my top 10, maybe top 20, because we're talking about 300 songs plus. Mm -hmm. um, Black Sunday and Uniform. And arguably, Protect and Survive is one of the most progressive rock songs Ian Anderson has done since thick as a brick mm -hmm. just musically speaking. So I don't, I, I have a hard time when people, I, I I'm not going to say your opinion's wrong because you can like what you like, but I'm going to defend. I'm going to be a defender. Look, of a lot and, of this and, and, and just because, There's, and like I said, like I said, if this was an Ian Anderson album, I would have less of an issue with it. Right. But, but when but you make it, when you, when you make it, when you make it, when you make an album uh -huh. and you say, look, you know, I understand that I see music going in a certain direction and we're staying clear of that. We don't want that to be us. And I understand that you kind of have to, uh, your, your music has to evolve uh, at a certain level, mm -hmm. but I, I feel like, and, and maybe, and maybe not so much with a, but definitely with their next album, broadsword, the beast. I mean, it's like the heavy synthesizer use just, is where you're, you like I said, you're you're saying one thing and they're doing something completely different. Well, with A, it is a solo album as far as I'm concerned. But then again, you could argue that that Minstrel in the Gallery was a solo album because no, it all couldn't. started. I could, 
it started out almost as a solo album. I said that earlier. It it starts out with very independent, not like well, these, not like a lot of a lot of bands are like that. I, I would actually say probably most bands are like that, where there's a one key person that writes most of the, a majority of the music and lyrics. Well, look at the look at the Foo Fighters' first album. Dave Grohl recorded the entire fucking album himself. Okay, it's still it's still a Foo Fighters album, but right but would you argue that that if you come say the next album with the band's more involved do you discredit that do you discredit the idea that that it's different because it's going to be different you say well it doesn't sound like a foo fighters album now because the other band members added their their no 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 because i would say that from this was to stand up was different because you had a different musical force but from stand up through jtall.com it was the same musical force yeah okay well i mean yeah and that that's what i was going to argue because i was going to bring in some of ian anderson's solo albums as a point but i wasn't mm-hmm. sure where you and that's to- why i said like a like if musically speaking if you look at a it's much more reminiscent of a lot of his solo work to me well and that's what and that's and that's why i said if it was a yeah. ian anderson album i would have a much less of an issue with it then because obviously and and that's where a lot of because a lot of a lot of musicians do that when they when they strike out look at freddie mercury's solo albums they're very different than what he was doing with queen because that's kind of what you do with a solo album if you wanted to do the same shit you're doing with your band you make another band album you know right and that's why i said if if it wasn't a and it's in the a obviously is for anderson because that's right it was it was a solo album right if it was if it was ian anderson's solo album like i said i would have much less issues with it than i than i do because it's a jethro Tull album. well next time you listen to it close your eyes and pretend it's an ian anderson solo album because <laughs> it's not because ultimately <laughs> ultimately everything about it is an ian anderson solo album until the, he hands over the recording to the to the record company and says here's my solo album and they say no make it a tall album Oh, it's, it's, a only a Tull Tull album. Album. it's a Jethro Tull album in title only. Still Jethro Tull album. It's, it's, it's released under the I don't, Jethro I don't Tull under, name. I don't understand how the name on the album has any effect on the what you think of the music. That makes no sense to me. Why is that? Because it's, it's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Because if, if I was a musician, if I was, yeah. if I was Ian Anderson, and I recorded this album, and I went to turn in the music label and the label goes oh no no you need to release release under jethro tall my response would be but this isn't a jethro tall album if you want me to make a jethro tall album i'll get the band in here we'll make a jethro tall album this mm-hmm. is not a jethro tall album though right and you can't tell me that ian anderson in 1980 didn't have the cachet with with the record label at that time to say to, to if they said they, they said they weren't going to release an ian anderson solo album and you just did all this work I mean, what's the point then? They're not going to release this as an Ian Anderson album. So yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Okay, we'll get together and do another album. But and that's see, that's kind of where that, that's that's, that's kind that's kind of where I call bullshit on it. Is like I said with with the with the with the record label. Mm. How does how do they you know? I don't know. I just don't see how they actually stop him from releasing a solo album. If if they had released three or four number ones prior to this. Mm-hmm. You're right. He has plenty of, of, of pull and he can do whatever he wants, but they hadn't, they weren't releasing number ones. They were still releasing 
albums that were charting lower than the albums before. Uh, you know, I would the overall be, prior to Stormwatch. You know the the three albums prior to that were actually all four of the five of the albums prior to that six albums that all charted in the top twenty in both the UK and the US before they're not number one prior to Stormwatch. No, but but they're all top twenty albums. Is what I'm saying. That's that's that that's a feat that is hard to do. I mean, obviously, I know there's lots of bands that have done that, but that's that's not something that's easily done. And that's why I'm saying after a at this point a 10 plus year relationship mm-hmm. i don't see how ian anderson goes in there and sits down and they say okay well you can't re- we're not going to release this album as no, a as a, we're not hold on we're not going to release this as an ian anderson album yeah. because I'm, there had to have been some kind of conversation prior to that mm. that ian anderson was like okay well, well i'm gonna record something as as my as myself and not the band right well, I don't know. I don't know. And if there, and if there wasn't, I can tell you. if there wasn't some kind of conversation, I think that speaks to the arrogance of Ian Anderson. Well, I can tell you this in retrospect, he has said on numerous occasions in the last 10 years that he should have fought harder for that to be, to not be a Jethro Tull album. Mm-hmm. And that's why so, I'm saying if, if that situation went down like that, I'm sure it probably went down more so of, as a suggestion. And he kind of just uh, said, okay. No, it was more than a suggestion, but I don't know. All I'm saying is he, this is neither one of those were there. So, right. And based on what he says, he does regret that decision overall. I don't, I don't see how, what name on the album has anything to do with how good the album is. Cause it's more, more goes along the lines of hypocrisy, but you know, it's whatever. Let's we'll, we'll we'll move on. Cause I've got bigger issues with the next couple of albums also. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I just, I mean, okay nothing came out in 81 first uh first year there was a gap without a release yeah was there a reason for that just uh they just take a break or uh i don't know i really don't i think it was just yeah just a break ian anderson wrote like 30 songs Mm -hmm. in that period of time yeah um and 10 of which made it onto broadsword and the beast uh, but when they did go into breaking, making Broadsword and the Beast, it was the first time Ian Anderson said, okay, now I really want to get a producer in on this. I don't want to yeah. produce this myself. It was a bad choice, by the way. It was their, their highest charting album of the 80s, though. We'll say that. Yeah, did it chart really high, though? When we, uh, what the chart numbers were. 19 in the U.S., 27 in the U.K., so it's not bad. Okay. It's still a top 20 album in the U.S., and, okay. it, and it, went, it went silver in the in the U.K. Okay. Um but my i think it was a mistake not to say that the producer they got was bad it was paul samuel smith mm-hmm. he had produced the vast majority of cat stevens albums and it kind of worked out because they had just hired uh gary conway to play drums which gary conway was or jerry conway i'm not sure who, know, it's jerry or gary but mm-hmm. um it's probably jerry he uh he played drums on most of cat stevens albums as well yeah i don't think he was a drummer for tall and i think that plays a big part in there's not a lot of synthesized drums in broadsword and the beast no there are, but there is some there's some synthesized drums just specifically on one song but overall the album is very toned down it's very bare bones mm-hmm. and critics i remember there being critics who said that broadsword and the beast is the album that brought tall into the 80s mm-hmm. I can agree with that. 
I don't agree with that. Yeah. I, I think well, it's an all right album. It's probably uh, very low on my list, though. I would say this, that Broadsword, they definitely took some more of that uh, 70s folk sound and they blended it with that 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 80s synthesizer sound mm, okay and that's and that's kind of where i can see the the progression of where they kind of brought the music into mm-hmm. the 80s yeah so Cause it's definitely because it's more, definitely more of an 80s style album than a was yo yeah no argument there no argument there um i just i just feel that there's there, even though there's some really good songs on there and some good themes going on there overall i find it kind of hollow yeah. kind of empty and because as i said he wrote like a bunch of songs in between uh the end of 80 and when this album was released and only mm-hmm. 10 of them show up on this album yeah. of all those other songs they've been released um retroactively over the years yeah. or not retro you know what i mean um over the yeah. years as unreleased material no songs were produced and, and recorded the same way all other tall stuff was yeah. much better songs Mm-hmm. I mean, even songs with the same band members playing instruments. I, I kind of shit on Jerry Conway a little bit, but even songs with him on it are way yeah. better. So the only thing I can figure is Paul Samuel Smith is a good producer. Jerry Conway is a good drummer, but neither one of them work well with Tall. Yeah, no, and, I get it. You know, I, and I and completely at, agree. And at this point, really, the only original Tall there is Dave Pegg, Ian Anderson, mm. and Martin Barr. So everything else around that is just going to be interchangeable anyway. Yeah, which the it cool is for the duration of up until '95 when they lose Dave Pegg. Yeah, you know? the kind of, kind of the cool thing is about this album was, um, the album first cover. off the, the the album cover, and yeah. the, actually the album cover was created by a Jethro Tall fan by the name of Lane McCaig. Mm-hmm. and he said that he actually and I, he didn't go into great detail at least in the article I was reading about it is that he put Jethro Tall Easter eggs in the cover of the album other than the faces in the uh the border there are hidden images in the cover of this album which hmm, i think that's cool i have to look deeper because i mean i've seen obviously there's the band members faces minus mm-hmm. dave Pegg. ironically i think dave no somebody oh no it's jerry conway's missing it's um peter john vitesse dave Pegg martin bar and ian anderson mm-hmm. in the corners mm-hmm. um but uh well if i and i read so when we originally did our jethro tall episode mm-hmm. i kind of was read is when i was reading about it so i kind of have to dig back in my memory because of course mm-hmm. i didn't write any of this stuff down but it was i think it was more so like the images were references to lyrics for the album or others other albums of Jethro Tull albums is what oh, I said. But. I'll have to look at it and I'll, I'll, I'll dig deeper. It's an album cover I love. I think it's one of the one of the like say top ten album covers of all time, if you ask me. But I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I think I'd say it's, it's a, a good album cover. I don't know about top ten, but it's definitely a good album cover. Yeah. Um, it's definitely the probably one of the best t- album covers for Jethro Tull. Yeah, so, I would agree. Uh, and that's maybe second to the one behind me here. Yeah, um, but. And, uh, yeah. Was overall was there anything I, else you wanted to say about really. that there's, album? Or? There's some good songs on it, but overall I don't really like it. Yeah. I I, I prefer the next two albums, honestly, over this one. And I I, 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 would, I would I would say this about Broadsword and the Beast. I mean, I've out of their entire catalog, it's probably my the album I've listened to the least uh, you know, 
of, of everything they've released that and under and under wraps because i was never a look man i'm gonna say it right now i hate electronic drums and the drums in under wraps kill me okay well it's all electronic so i get it yeah there's it's the only album of their out of their entire catalog where there's not a live drummer yes but all the drums are played live perform when it's when the album was performed but so with record, electronic re- drums yeah i mean they're, I don't know. they're pre- played live with a lot electronic drums he's playing yeah. the electronic drums i know but he's playing those songs he's playing real drums yeah. when he's playing the cool thing songs. is so i mean the, like the concept behind the album is kind of cool it's all it's it's heavily influenced by ian anderson's uh love of espionage fiction which is mm-hmm. kind of cool so it's specifically uh, john lacare yeah Mm-hmm. um we did skip real quick um i do want to touch base because 83 did bring forth the very first dean anderson solo album mm-hmm. and a lot of what's going on there influenced what under wraps became yeah ultimately it was ian anderson finally built a studio on his own property yeah his own in home which studio. is really surprising because that's by the early 80s i mean it was uh, especially for a band that that had been They'd around always, as long as they have been they'd that, always recorded on the road nick everything was recorded on the road yeah but i mean e- even yeah, but uh, most mus- musicians had some kind of studio at their house mm-hmm. to record didn't he just didn't he didn't build put it in until 80 late 82 um, strange but as a result when he's buying all the new equipment a lot of new technologies new types of musical instruments electronic instruments a lot of things came yeah. with that pro- property and mm-hmm. it was just him playing around with it peter yeah. john Vitesse knew how to knew i mean he was a young kid he was only like 20 something years old at the time so he was more familiar with that so ian anderson brought him in to kind of teach him how to work a lot of this stuff and as a result they worked on music together that is very electronic there's i think there's maybe a little bit there's very little flute in the album and there's a couple times when ian anderson's playing electronic electric guitar the rest of the album is all synthesized it was just a matter of working and and learning how to write music and and record with all this new equipment so really it was all just an experiment Mm -hmm. and as a result i think for better or worse ian anderson learned things in that that he felt could be applied to jethro tall yeah and when they went to record under wraps he brought a lot of that with them at the time they did not have a drummer jerry conway went off and did other things so it was just a natural progression. We we did an album with no drummer by myself. We'll work on this material and see what happens. Personally, I think so the the complexity of the music, even though it is a lot like a lot of electronic music, is at is the peak of the eighties. I don't think anything they did before at before or after was as complex as what's going on in under apps, though it is an electronic album. The guitar very, is there. Very much. The guitar is there. The bass is there, but the keyboards and the drums are all electronic, and it's all uh, you know. It is very a uh, very electronic album. The uh, and, and in retrospect, Ian Anderson says he would love if he could, because he can't do it vocally. If he could, he would go back and re-record that entire album with real instruments. That I was think it would one be, regret. I think it would be, be a better album. Yeah, he said that on numerous occasions. He likes the music, what he wrote. But he wants to. He would love to go back and re-record that. Yeah. The, the, inter- could- the interesting thing, real quick, about this album is that this is the first album since this was that a majority of the songs were co-written by somebody else. Yes, Peter John Vitesse and I think Martin Barr actually wrote all the music, not the lyrics, just the music for mm-hmm. the song Paparazzi. Yeah. 
So yeah, Ian Anderson, this, this was a, a band effort too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the band was there. Everyone was very proud of it. Now this is what, I, this is one of the things I, I, where the record company, you think Ian Anderson had a lot of pull. Um, Chrysalis records was co-owned and co-founded by Terry Ellis, who was Tull's manager. Yeah. When they finished the album, they had him come down and listen to it. He came in, sat down, they played the entire album for him. All the time he's drinking a, a, from a bottle of wine. He finished the wine while the, the duration of the album, he stood up and said, we need another fucking Aqualung, not this bullshit, and walked out. That's funny. So, I mean, they didn't, yeah, Ian Anderson had a pull, but didn't mean that they didn't, the record label didn't treat him like shit. Oh, well. He was still an employee of the, band, of the, of the record label. I will say one other thing that I was reading a, an article where Dave Pegg was quoted as saying that he thinks had they incorporated more of the tracks that were cut from the album, that it would, that, that it would have been a much better album. Uh, there were only four tracks cut and they did incorporate them out of the CD. There's no unreleased, uh, there's no unreleased material from that album that I know of. Because I would have said the same thing about Sorry. Well, that's a that's okay. a direct quote from Dave Pegg. Okay. Well, that's all the more reason why I would really love to hear Steve Wilson's remix because they don't release all the new shit unless he goes through all the archives to clean it yeah. all up. Yeah. I mean that as a result of of Steve Wilson's remix, we got two unreleased recordings from 1974 that I never knew existed. Yeah. Uh, two unreleased recordings from 1976 I didn't know existed. Uh, one from 77 four from 78 four from 79 who's this, and these are all songs that ian anderson didn't even know existed and, and i guess looking at looking at it this way it might not even have been anything that they really released it could have been anything something that they were just working on right i know that there's an instrumental version of one of the tracks off of ian anderson's solo album that is not as electronic like he's playing real guitar real flute and there's uh-huh. it's an instrumental version um so I do know that that that's out there. I don't know how complete it is. Yeah. But I I'm I'm all about the shit I haven't heard. So it's it's, yeah. it's very exciting to hear that. I did not know that. I've never seen that quote before. Mm-hmm. But unless Steve Wilson does it or they get somebody else to do it, and Ian Anderson's cool you'll ne- you'll you'll never see it. Probably. You'll never hear it exactly. Um, because Ian Anderson doesn't care. No. He does. He 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 loves what Steve Wilson's done with it. And he's always, he's always said, if Steve Wilson wants to do the whole catalog, he can do whatever he wants. He doesn't question it. Um, he just comes and puts his signature on it and says, do what you want. Yeah. Um, he's been pretty much hands-off since Passion Play with that stuff. Because he because lo- Passion Play, he wanted Steve Wilson to fuck with it. He wanted to change everything. He wanted to you know, take that saxophone out of there, do whatever you, you know, change it however you want. And Steve Wilson said, no. And as a result, Ian Anderson just said, okay, well, you obviously know what you're doing because yeah. it does sound better. So... But ultimately, um, Under Wraps is an album. I understand why people don't like it. Yeah, it's very different. But it's not a. It's. I don't think it's a. It's a play at trying to be an '80s band because it is very different from a lot of the shit going on in the '80s too. It is just a band. I wouldn't say to, a whole lot different. I mean, I understand that they're trying to find. They're a using the sound. same. There's. They're using the. You know techniques that were the same, but yeah. musically speaking, that album was not going to appeal to the old toll card and it definitely wasn't going to appeal to the kids listening to Duran Duran. I think it's funny though. Cause if you look at that album and then you look at their next album, Crest of a Knave, mm-hmm. it was Crest of a Knave was definitely more of a 
hard rock album mm-hmm. than and, and it, more of a kind of a traditional rock album than yes. anything else that they had done before that in the 80s yeah um and i should point out that this is now after under apps was the longest period of time they went without recording anything and after 84 I, it was the longest period they'd gone without touring before and since yeah and i want to say that they took, the, they took a whole year off because of ian anderson's voice yeah well he had, he had a throat infection and he, and he really, strained his voice really bad trying to sing the under rap songs yeah and that's why there is kind of a, a, a definitely a different vocal style that he uses on crest of nave than what yeah. he used prior to that yeah the doctors told him he had to he had to tone it down and they were the ones yeah. who told him he had to take a year off um he, he did do one performance in 1986 they did a i think it was a tribute to bach i think it's bach and it's 300th birthday so it was either, yeah it was i think it was Bach's 300th birthday they did a, a concert <clears throat> that was it one concert in 1986 they didn't do anything in 85 and they and from that one concert in 86 to their tour in 87 that started in september i think of 87 yeah no touring at all but again it was it, that gave Tony and anderson time to sit down and just kind of write well, songs his own oh, way but it worked it worked because in 1989 they won the best hard rock grammy yeah for an album that is <laughs> not a hard rock album well i mean i don't know i mean i as far as jethro talk catalog goes it's probably more of a hard rock album than a lot of their other music. See, I don't know. I think there's harder hitting songs on Stormwatch. There's harder hitting songs on Minstrel McGallery. I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking total album, like overall album. I feel it's got a more of a okay. hard rock. I'm, I'm not saying obviously comparing it to Metallica and justice for all, which should have won the Absolutely. Grammy that year. Yeah. It's not like that kind of hard rock. Right. Well, and I think, I for for what it's worth, Ian Anderson has, has been quoted as saying, "We we didn't win because we had the best hard rock album. We won because we're a bunch of nice guys that the very aging Academy, yeah, or a band that, that the Academy had actually heard, of. heard of before, yeah. So because I I don't know I don't know how that works, but I know that it was a new category. It was the first year for it. It was Metallica was." not a mainstream band but it was quickly becoming a mainstream band but that kind of music their kind of music wasn't mainstream yet you know what the interesting thing is is like according i guess i'd have to go back and look because i have it written down as they because they won the grammy for best hard rock slash metal performance instrumental Mm. i thought it was the album because it's listed as crest of a nave one yeah so, but I have to go that, back and look because I just have it written on my AC, notes that AC, way, ACDC and Iggy Pop were the other two artists in that category nominated, mm-hmm. and I don't see them doing instrumental album, instrumental songs. Metallica has instrumental songs. They've yeah. done they've done several. They've done several up to that point, but mm-hmm. I don't think ACDC or Iggy Pop ever did instrumental songs. They're not really instrumental type. No, no, because I guess I've never listened to what Iggy Pop album would that have been? God, I don't know. I'm. I don't know any of Iggy Pop's stuff. I mean, even the Stooges stuff. I, I I'd recognize it if I heard it, but I wouldn't know any of it by name and, or anything. And ACDC would have been the Black album. No, this is '89, so this would have been oh '89 though. Been Razor's Edge. Razor's Edge. Yeah, which uh, that wasn't all that great of an album anyway. But I don't remember. Some being... good songs on it. I think Money Talks is one of their best songs. It is. So it's Thunderstruck, but still. 
Uh, like overall, there's probably only like three songs on that album that are, I would say are like really good songs. So. Well, I, ultimately, you can't get in a category like that without selling. I mean, Crest of an Ave sold very well. Um, it's, they, they, sold, they sold about a million records. The, it went gold in the U.S. Yeah. It reached number 32 on the charts. Right. So, um, I mean, you know, if they sold 100,000 copies only no one would have, they wouldn't have been in no. that category so and it was their first gold album since stormwatch and their last yeah mm-hmm. um well i honestly think them winning the grammy hurt them i really yeah, do I don't, I don't know i i'm sure there was they probably became, a they became a joke to people after that uh, there was a backlash for a short period of time rock mm-hmm. we can get to the next album rock island is a i think a better album than crest of a Nave. i agree wow we actually agree on something yeah, and it's not. I mean, I'm still not a huge al- fan of the album, um, but it's probably one of their better albums of the '80s for sure. Well, I, I still, I'm still a, a hardliner for uh, under wraps, but yeah, no, I, I would put, um, I'd put Rock Island as my third favorite of the '80s. Yeah, well, Rock Island was kind of a continuation of that rock sound. Yes, it was a heavier album. It was, I think, intentionally a heavier album than uh, Chris Van Abe was. Yeah. Um, Chris Van Abe had a lot of soft, ballady songs on it. Yeah. That's why I don't understand why it won for Best Hard Rock, you know, whereas Rock Island was pretty much a straightforward hard rock album. I think Rock Island was more of a response to them winning that Grammy. Uh, possibly, possibly. Because they were like, look, you thought Crest of a Name was a rock album? I'll give you a rock album. <laughs> right, exactly. And no one bought it. No. Well, <laughs> the, well, it went silver in the UK. And right. I mean, it charted, it, it actually charted pretty decent in the UK. It was charted uh, 18, which is mm-hmm. one spot higher than Crest of a Nave, but it charted 56 here in the, in the US. Yeah. So, or no one in the US bought it. How's that? Yeah. Uh, except for my dad. <laughs> Uh, and he bought it on uh, CD. I think it was the second uh, Tall album that came out, and he bought it on CD for the first first run. Yeah, um, I take that back because I he had he had Crest of a Nave on vinyl, but he did not buy Rock Island on vinyl. So, and then that kind of what, what was that? I was, I, was, I was gonna say with uh, Rock Island, I think it's some of Dave Pegg's best playing bass wise. Uh, that's not really saying a whole lot. Well, you also have to take into account he's a folk bassist. Yeah. You know, he his his bass playing is from uh, he grew up as a folk bassist. Yeah. What kind of bass I mean, how you're not going to be doing any flea shit, flea type shit in a folk bass. I oh, well, I know that. Yeah, I know. So, but you know, overall overall he's probably a better bass player than what Jeffrey Hammond was, but I think it, it's I mean, he's still very rudimentary bass player yeah perhaps um i would see i would say that glenn cornick was their best yeah uh and um john glasscock was their second best yeah i would definitely agree with that because john glasscock was a great bass player he was he was really good but but uh uh, and then that kind of brings us into the 90s it kind of gets us out of that that shit 80s sound 80s funk yeah (laughs) <laughs> and their next two albums, I think, were kind of, re- like I said earlier, returns. They they finally found that sound that they had, and they did such a great job with in the 70s. Because mm-hmm. Catfish Rising and Rooster Branches, I think, are 
head and shoulders above anything that they had released since Stormwatch. Yeah, no, I, I guess I can't necessarily argue with that. I wouldn't put, I definitely wouldn't put either one of those albums below under wraps as you know, I'd put them above under wraps. Sort of yeah. um, as much as I love under wraps and, and roots to branches is probably the best album of their latter period period. Yeah. I would agree with that. But I love, I do love Catfish Rising. There's so much good stuff going on in Catfish Rising because it is such a toned down, almost bluesy folk album. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. You know? And it, it's just from that's that's a just one of my top. It, that's in my top ten by yeah. far. So it's funny you mentioned that too because that's that's one thing I had in my notes that was uh, much more of a blues sound than mm-hmm. anything that they had done the previous fifteen plus years. Right. Really, probably right. since this was. Right. And I think that was just kind of a natural, it wasn't that they were, he was going for a, a blue sound. I think it just kind of naturally came out of the fact that they were, they were bringing it back to uh, like a wooden instrument type of thing. Yeah, Mandolins, heavy mandolin in that album, yep. more acoustic guitar, straightforward electric guitar. Um, I mean, just everything was just toned down to bare mm-hmm. bones instruments. And yeah. And, and guess it what? Makes a huge difference. And guess what? What? It it didn't sell. No, <laughs> nobody bought it. Nobody bought uh, it. Nobody and which bought and, it. And, and and that's unfortunate because it is a good album. Right. But then that's funny. Then you kind of come to Roots to Branches, which I think, like if if Catfish Rising is one A of the post seventies music, I think Roots to Branches is one B. I mean, it mm-hmm. just it's it's either or. It's either, you, either one but of them I are think, definitely my. Right, Roots to Branches is way more heavy though. It's got more rock to it than than it, it is. Blues. It is. It is. And it, but I think definitely Roots to Branches. I think definitely is their most complete albums uh, since the seventies, because beginning to end. Yeah, I can see that. Um, like I said, it's it's to give to give context. My first favorite is Thick as a Brick. Second, the Minstrel Gallery. Third Stormwatch, fourth Roots to Branches, fifth Storm uh, Songs from the Wood. Mm-hmm. So my top five Roots to Branches is the only non seventies one in that top five. Yeah, um, because I think Roots to Branches is just, just the, wonderful album. The interesting thing with Roots to Branches is I think Jethro Tull did a perfect job at what they, in my opinion, messed up going into the eighties. And that was, you know, they found an evolution that kind of worked. Right. Because they, 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 that album was definitely had, uh, you know, jazz influence. It had Indian influence. It had, you know, some, some Arabic influences. It definitely had an Eastern sound to some, to, to some of it. So right. you had this influence. But, you know, I think the thing that really hurt Roots to Branches was that it was released in 1995. So you've got this like huge grunge explosion going on. And I think that's the main reason why I really undercharted. Cause I mean, in the U S it charted at 114. Yeah. Where in the UK, it, it was a, it was a top 20 album. Really? Which is a huge disparity. Disparity. Yeah. Well, of course. Do you really think it matters though, that the grunge was the heavy force? Cause if this think, album, if this album had been released that, in say 1989, I think it would have sold better. Because hmm. it's a great album, but it was just kind of 
covered over by what was going on in the music. But I, I don't think any audience was ready for it in '89. No, no. Because but it, I'm just saying, it, it would have been way too ahead of its time. Yeah, no. it almost the, I, as it is. But like I said, it's a it's a really it's a great album, but it's it was just bad timing. It was yeah. just everything else that was going on in the music scene just kind of covered over it. Yeah, arguably though, it could have been great timing because if you look at the lyrics for the specifically for the song roots to branches and then um, to a much lesser extent dangerous veils there's a lot of islamic not it's not criticizing islam but it's it is referencing the fundamental extremism of yeah of muslim of islam Mm -hmm. which six short years later we get 2001 um there are elements of that song that are almost uncanny predictive Mm-hmm. of what was coming and then just yeah, i mean just weirdly um, well because that kind of that kind of stuff prior to you know because obviously september 11th kind of brought all that to the common forefront in the united states but that stuff had been growing for a decade right. i mean really since the early 80s in europe yeah, so absolutely. yeah i mean and it that's was, what he, it was definitely something that people outside of the united states had more of an idea what was going on than the people living their lives here. Right. But you just, you know, ultimately from a perspective of as an American uh, and hearing those song, hearing that song specifically. And then after that happened and then thinking, and when we think about it, you're just thinking, Oh my God, this was six years ago. And it's, it is, like I said, it is uncannily predictive of, yeah you know obviously on a much more poetic level but um yeah so and i guess ultimately and i we should point out that the the break between catfish rising and uh roots to branches is now again the largest gap in between a new album being released is four years Um, up to this point there's only been a gap of two years in between Mm -hmm. albums or three years from under wraps to crest of name but two years other than that yeah and uh yeah it a sign of things to come. <laughs> well, I mean, the next album was, I mean, it was the last Jethro Tull album. It was the last, yes. You could, some people argue that the Christmas album in 2003 was the last, but it's not. No, it's, it, jtull.com was, it was released yeah. in 99. It was their last album to feature full original music. Yes. Oh, with, put it with, that way. with Martin Barr because Martin Barr and Ian Anderson Martin Barr is the only one who stuck with the band through the entirety of the 70s and through the entirety of the 80s yeah. and ultimately he stayed until 2012 yeah. but Ian had always said if Martin Barr is with me it's a Jethro Tull album and if he's not it's not and it was the last one that Martin Barr played on other than the Christmas album yeah but that it, being uh, said it was a it was probably a terrible album to go out on I really wish they would have done one more album. I, I will say this, that I I don't have much of an opinion of the album because I'm pretty sure I'm going to listen to it once. And that was shortly after it came out. I think I listened to it in your car after you bought the CD. And uh, I felt, obviously comparing it to the album before, right. that it wasn't, I mean, it was it's an okay album. Nothing really stood out to me, though. No, and that's really its problem. It's it's a bunch of all right songs. They're yeah. good songs. Every one of them is a good song, except for Hot Mango Flush. Hot Mango Flush sucks. And Mango <laughs> Surprise, which is just kind of a reprise of of uh, um, Hot Mango Flush, terrible. Yeah. It's garbage. And I hate to say it, it, it was musically written by Martin Barr. 
that doesn't say much because oh, it's like he wrote uh musically he did paparazzi he wrote the music for paparazzi and underwraps i love that song yeah but he he wrote the music for hot mango flush he Anderson wrote the lyrics i hate it i can't stand it um it's this weird i don't even know what to call it it's just it's not good i hate it i never listened to it if i had my way it would be not even be on the album yeah uh, but overall the rest of the songs they're good they're good songs they're all right songs there's nothing bad going on but you're just eh for jethro tall they're eh yeah, I, I get it. So I don't know. There's to me, there's one or two songs on there where it's Ian Anderson being more pop than he ever been for the time period. Anyway, uh, "Gift of Roses" I think sounds too much like a pop song for mm-hmm. for a, ni- a 1990s pop song. Uh, not like a dance pop song, but just like a pop rock song. You know, I don't know. Just, it, just, just, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not overly impressed with the album. Never have been. Um. If we're allowed to go further, because this is the last Jethro Tull album, song, uh, Secret Language of Birds is probably the roots to branches of the 2000s. Really? By far. Uh, it's a, basically just an acoustic album. It's just an Ian Anderson solo album. The only per- person who plays on it from the band is Andrew Giddings on keyboards, and he does very little. And we did skip over Ian Anderson's other solo album, Divinities, which is an all-instrumental um they call it a classic rock uh or not a classical something or other but it actually charted number one on the classical crossover charts crossover mm-hmm. that's what it is no i do remember that it, it actually charted number one um but and it's an it's a great album but it's just it's just instrumental kind of orchestral music but secret language of birds is a great fucking album it's if i because i count all Ian anderson solo albums as tall albums because he wrote them all anyway um it's I put it at number uh six in my top top ten or my top list. Okay. So if anyone out there give Secret Language of Birds a try, because it's a great album. It's one of those albums that's just it's unique, it's toned down, it's it's kind of bare bones again. Ian Anderson with an acoustic guitar, flute, not a lot of heavy riffs are going on, just there's a lot of the um ethnic influences that you find on roots to branches but just very toned back and it's very acoustic it's very good what uh what, once again what'd you say your top five was uh, ever, ever since you mentioned that i've been kind of thinking of over my head trying to figure out what mine would be uh number one is thick as brick number two is minstrel gallery number three is Stormwatch. number four is roots to branches and number five was uh, songs from the wood i would have to go probably benefit one Okay. Uh, um, minstrel probably two, stand up three. Um, probably four would be roots to branches. Okay. And then five would probably be songs from wood. So our four and five are the same. Yeah. So. I think our number two was too. I think. Minstrel gallery. Yeah. 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 I mean. <laughs> There's a lot of good music going on there. And they do. They, they so there's we may disagree on the on their their mid career, we'll say. Yeah. A bit. And I would say you should probably, you know, it's amazing how things can your perspective of on things can change as you get older. Um I know we're it just depends on how long ago it's been since you listened to these albums, but sometimes listening to it with an older ear, you you, you may hate it more. Hey, you, you know what? I that's one thing I can say is like 
like take like we've talked about on our pink floyd episode growing up i was a pink floyd fan i was a dark side of the moon and the wall kind of fan Mm -hmm. and as i've gotten older and kind of gone back and listened to their other albums i mean like you become a super fan metal is like metal is an incredible album and uh it was one of those albums that uh you know i was never i never really listened to when i was younger so yeah obviously as you get older i think you feel you you pick up on things differently yeah so you get a different feel and and as as you as you venture through life i feel like you you have a tendency to maybe connect more to that music because of events in your life and things you've lived through so uh yeah i think it's always better don't automatically like shit on something go back and actually listen to right. it. right right and that's and that's how i feel because like i said there's my perspective on tall hasn't changed too much but on specific songs they have it has considerably there's songs that i listen to now yeah. that i i either loved when i was a kid and don't like as much now and then there's other songs where i didn't like them as much before and i'm like why the fuck did i hate that song or not like that song as much yeah that song's fantastic mm-hmm. and that's and that's even other bands that's other other artists and that i i completely disregarded when i was younger i'm thinking why the hell did i do that yeah you know, but, I, uh, I never really used to, when I was like a teenager. I didn't like Radiohead. Now I love mm-hmm. Radiohead. Yeah, you know why? Because perspective changes. Yeah, so. but I would definitely say if you're like a fan of classic rock, mm-hmm. if you're a fan of those '70s bands, Led Zeppelin, all that stuff, go back and listen to the to the Jethro Tull catalog again, mm, and, and kind of give give it a second listen, even if it's been you know 15, 20, 30 years since you've listened to any of it. Go back and listen to it again. Or if you're and, if you're a twenty something, go back and let's do it for the first time. Right, and do me a favor. Don't don't automatically just go to Aqualung because I know that's it's kind of the one that people go to. It's it's the go. I think I think it's more accessible to people. It might be, but I think start maybe like it's stand up maybe a more benefit but then yeah. skip over Aqualung. Go to Thick as a Brick. Go to Minstrel in the Gallery. Go to Songs from the Wood because I think that's a bit more in, indicative of what the band was at that time oh yeah 70s. absolutely absolutely you know so a uh, little trivia and i i did not know this because i when i i told you I, I listened to a bunch of records the other day a bunch of tall records the other day um the remastered uh vinyls come with booklets that are you know 40th anniversary edition booklets did you say vinyls vinyl vinyl records you said vinyls vinyls plural Multiple vinyl records, plural. The multiple of vinyl is vinyl. Just want well, to say whatever. That. Multiple of record is record. <laughs> so vinyl records. Yes. I must be you, you, you can say you went back and listened to some records, but you went back and listened. I was, some but vinyl. I was implying that I was listening to the to the vinyl. And I just point the I just pointed that out because like that's one of the big jokes in the vinyl community. But okay. go ahead with what you're saying. All right, whatever. Um, but anyway, I was reading through the Passion Playbook, and we were talking about the Chateau de Harville where yeah. they recorded the lost album uh pink floyd recorded there too they recorded obscured by yep. absolutely I, I didn't know that i, I did know that yeah yep. so. i did interesting little side note obscured by clouds is not that great of an album though. no well apparently it's not that great of a studio apparently although <laughs> cat stevens catch bullet four is a great album so. yeah um it's just probably the last great album he made ultimately so but that's about it man that's all i had yeah, check out Jethro Tull, please. Yeah, go out there and listen to him. Like, uh, <laughs> I've, uh, I, I mean, I've, I, it's not something I have in like heavy rotation. 
But, you know, I definitely go back. My wife, Mandy hates it, by the way. Every time I listen to a Jethro Tall song and she's around, she gives me a bunch of shit about it. But whatever. Mm. I think it's more so with the flute than anything else. But mm. I don't understand that. Mm. I don't know. It's, it's some people don't like certain. Can't argue with it either. Certain, certain instruments, I guess. But, but uh, you freezing up on me, man? I guess so. I guess I'll go ahead and end the show for you. All right. You pause it? Well, you're on. It's unpaused now. So yeah, uh, okay. I'm just wrapping the show. I was gonna wrap up the show without you, in, but uh, <laughs> well, I, we I, we froze. I, <laughs> no, I don't. I, I usually have my internet set to stay connected all the time. Well, I was playing around with stuff earlier, and I shut that off, and I forgot to shut it, turn it back on. So it's all and Ian's fault. My internet timed out and it disconnected <laughs> from the wireless. You know, so this time it was. We've been talking too long. That's what it is, man. Yeah, but, well, uh, that's probably. I just wanted to say, yeah, any uh, questions or comments, you can email us at contact with life and podcast.com. Check us out on Twitter at L I G pod. Check uh, follow the show on Facebook. Um, I need to post more stuff on there, but uh, yeah. obviously follow us on YouTube. If you're watching us on YouTube, thanks for checking us out. Uh, leave us a, yeah. leave us a, and all, if you're watching this on YouTube, all these things he's mentioning are all listed at the very end of the titles. Yeah. So watch it. <laughs> <laughs> check out, I put work into check it. Check out Ian's editing. Uh, yeah, I, I put some work into it. So but, uh, there's, there's cheaply made animated titles, but they're they're there, and they tell you all the information you need. Uh, so, be it, uh, leave us a five star review on uh, iTunes and check six star, six star, Check six out the show on Spotify and uh, iHeartRadio. We're just about everywhere else too. That's all I got, man. I'm good. Until next time. Talk to y'all later. Peace. Play my role, let me tell you about it. This shit right here, man, I'm about about it. Only real niggas reside around me. Yo, lady, drop a card around me. Dip like I know you can, bitch. Show me the rust like we in the ring. Got you some cobras, you wanna hang? Shoulder to shoulder, them niggas basic. You know I won't lie. You know that I ain't for that fuck shit. You niggas alright, but I'm way better and she love it. Know that y'all sick as fuck. Here go this tissue, bro. We taking the dub, hoping you get you some. This here like a pick me up. She taking my drugs. Now they see the sign. That's some dollar sign. Now they sick as fuck. Now they sick as fuck. Tell them get well soon. Tell them get well soon. Now you sick as fuck. Get well soon. Oh shit. Watch out, you the car, Billy. Oh shit. Right now, and I'm smiling in your face, bitch. With a gold smile, you should probably make placement to your eye. Niggas sick as fuck. Standing with niggas. Who died for that party? Who died for some bitches who showing their bodies? Swear to God, nigga, this Molly got me up and rolling.